Ladies and gentlemen, the following podcast contains coarse language, strong thematic themes, talk of history and context, terrible imitations of Hollywood figures, and an unbashed love of Hollywood's golden age. It also contains the ramblings of an unstable dork who has too much time on his hands. Listener discretion is advised. And now, on with the program. Okay, Zach, you're on the air. Yesteryear, Ballyhoo. Review. Hey, Abbott, I just wrote a joke. I'll tell it, if I may. That's a silly thing to say. There's no new jokes today. Whether jokes are old or new, just telling them is lots of fun. You dig up some old pun and say, have you heard this one? Hey, Costello, no smoking. Hey, Abbott. Who's smoking? You are. What makes you think I'm smoking? Well, you've got a cigar in your mouth. I got my shoes on, but I ain't walking. Oh, <laughs> come on. <laughs> come on and laugh, laugh, laugh. 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 There's, There's a lot to be thankful for. Laugh, laugh, laugh. Things have been worse before. If you're double-crossed by the friends you picked, knocked about and beaten and kicked, they may have you down, but you'll never be licked. If you, you laugh, laugh, laugh. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Many great sights await inside the picture palace of the past, and we have plenty of ways to talk about the things inside. So hurry and get your seats. Tonight, the Ballyhoo will be filled with nonstop hilarity, courtesy of one of Filmland's finest comedy duos. The laughs will flow like water along the Rio Grande as we hit a dusty trail in Texas with Abbott and Costello in 1942's Rio Rita. So see the show and stay behind for a discussion to delight the earbuds. Brooklyn. All right. Answer the phone. It didn't ring? Why wait till the last minute? I saw your eyes in the 
Now that you've seen the show, we will get to the talk of the day. At the height of their popularity across radio and film, Bud Abbott and Lou Costello were a hot commodity that was filling the coffers of Universal with much-needed income. But the biggest studio of the Golden Age, MGM, wanted in on this action. For three films, Abbott and Costello were loaded o- loaded over to U- Louis B. Mayer. Par- <laughs> For three films, Abbott and Costello were loaned out to... For three, loaned out yes loaned out <laughs> for three for three films Abbott and Costello were loaned out to Louis B. Mayer's palatial studio to infuse their brand of burlesque banter and slapstick into a remake of a 1927 musical in the legacy of Bud and Lou Rio Rita may th- fall through the cracks of respective film lovers and we are here to rectify that but we cannot do it alone with me is a return guest whose passion for Bud and Lou will be on display as it was for his passion fueled arguments in favor of to catch a thief his devotion to casablanca and his ability to correct me during my blunders please welcome back to the ballyhoo mr matt willicks <laughs> thank you sir <laughs> and that i do what, I, I do what i can i and, do what i can i know and i'm not changing any of that <laughs> just gonna keep it all in like <laughs> hey willicks <laughs> but yes, uh, welcome back. Now, since your uh, appearance on the show, um, a lot has happened. Uh, many things have unfolded over the course of uh, the world, but also on the show. And uh, before we get to the talk of Bud and Lou, uh, we yes. have to address uh, a black hat in the room, Mr. Adam Jewell. Uh, he, oh. he on the Searchers episode, uh, we I were still talking. Listen to it. Yeah, no, that's fine. I'm going to give you a sneak preview, sir. Uh, okay. He discussed how he was the bad boy of golden age Hollywood in the respect that he is like the black hat where he goes like, not, no, not all of these movies are great. And he said, but Matt Willicks, I feel like Matt Willicks is the white hat. Uh, and so they would have to have a duel. And like, so I, I Willicks, here's your chance to respond. Are you the white hat to Adam Jules black hat? <laughs> so, what is Adam saying that I like all the movies? Or that that you are a little bit more, you are much more passionate about Golden Age Hollywood than he is. I believe is the uh, uh, is the phrase. Oh, yeah. If that's the argument, then yes, I am. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the thing: I don't think it's an argument so much as a defined reality. <laughs> so I don't know why he said I'm calling you out, but I'm like, well, I'm I'm gonna bring it up because I, I mean. Why didn't he call you out? Because you're a bigger fan than I am of Golden Age of Hollywood. Well, I, I don't know. Maybe you're trying to be polite to the host. I don't, I don't know what's going on through that. Uh, yeah, yeah, here's the thin thing. Adam has a mustache now. So, like, I don't know what's going on in the brain of a man who has a mustache. I just never know what they're thinking. <laughs> <laughs> He's a they must- hide their thoughts behind that thin line of hair. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to... <laughs> He's gonna be like, well, fine, I'll shave it, and then you could just hear all my thoughts. How about that? He, I yeah. won't be, I won't be a mustache dad who knows best. I'll just be a no facial hair dad who knows nothing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I guess, I guess if you were, if you were to just, if someone would just turn on a, a golden age, like a just a classic Hollywood movie, I would just sit down and enjoy it and you know, watch it. I, I guess. He wouldn't. Is that what he's saying? I I think so. I think he's a little bit more critical of them. Like he's a little oh, bit, oh. he's a little bit more inclined towards the new wave um, of the seventies, the American new wave, and oh. things beyond that point. Um, but he's 
he's more than willing to acquiesce to the particulars that he's seen. So, I mean, he's a Billy Wilder aficionado, so and he knows more <laughs> oh, okay. about Billy Wilder than I do. So, um, well, so so here's the thing: after I became sort of a filmmaker, um, you know, after we kind of learned how to make films in film school, mm-hmm. I just I just realized how difficult it was. And even if you're making a piece of shit, mm-hmm. it just you still you can still learn something from that. You can still have fun with that. You yep. can still bond with your crew and your cast. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. You can make lifelong memories and friends from all that. So that I, I guess that's what I kind of look at when I look at movies now, because like my, you know, like when I went through the critical thinking stage of film school where I was being, you know, just like looking at a film like, Oh no, try to think about it critically. And it's just like, okay. You know, thinking about genre tropes and all that kind of stuff. And I was just like, that kind of annoyed me that I thought that I was starting to think that way. And now I'm just like, you know what? Somebody spent time on this. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, they, they, I'm, I'm sure somebody poured some blood, sweat and tears into it. So it, mm-hmm. it needs, it needs to be given a shot you know what i mean at least like is this this might be somebody's only you know this might be what carries them through memory of pop culture later in life you know what i mean so yeah and i and i agree with that i mean like we we have a mutual friend who um he he asked me something very very telling in my youth that i still carry with me is goes like zach do you just like every movie (laughs) (laughs) and i and i responded very defiantly with like yes because it takes it it takes it it takes hard work to make a movie and i would say like the only instances where i would uh you know acquiesce to hating a movie would probably be the happening with (laughs) mark Wahlberg. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but now as i've gotten older i am a little bit more critical um but i still very much stand behind the principle of like it takes a lot of effort to make a movie and it would be it would behoove me to look at the positive attributes rather than to just live in a steel of negativity um you know i i like i i understand like there's that saying like every movie out there is somebody's favorite movie yep um and i think that's i think that's i think that's true you know like everyone has weird like guilty pleasure movies and you know everyone finds joy in, in different places and yeah and 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 there are movies i certainly dislike you know but um i i think i think i think all of it is is you know yeah it's contributing to a greater whole ultimately of just exactly. keep it, keeping the medium alive like i'm not i'm not super hot on the fast and furious movies but when i go to them i do have fun like i mean mm-hmm. I, I will never deny that i don't have fun when i have to yeah. like critically review them later i'm like yeah you know this like uh, uh hobbs and shaw was a good example where i'm like this movie is exactly what i expected it to be and that's why i'm giving it a positive review <laughs> but i mean at the same time it's like why are you being critical of a fast and furious movie it's a fast and furious movie you know what i mean exactly. like it's, it's it's not meant to to like <laughs> yeah oh, oh no exactly like inspired and, but it, but it took I mean? me a while to get to that point where i would not rail against mindless action movies or even comic book adaptations now nowadays i'm more just like look if it's giving you joy i i i that's that's the, all the reason in the world for it to exist like yeah unless it's unless it's explicitly designed to spread hate i don't care like <laughs> right right exactly but uh but yeah we're not here to talk about 
uh, Fast and the Furious presents Hobbs no. and Shaw or Fast and Furious. We're here, we're here to talk about a- Abbott and Costello, Bud and Lou, um, two comedians who are in that echelon of folks who were able to work and succeed in all three mediums, radio, television, and cinema. Um, the uh, This actually comes off as an extension sort of of a conversation that'll be ongoing down the line. But when we did the Jack Benny episode, and um, by now we'll have also heard the To Be or Not To Be episode out there, we talked a lot about Jack why Jack didn't work in film or what were the issues uh, at hand. And Jack being a big radio star had a lot to contribute to that um, end of things. But Abbott and Costello were not only successful in film as well as radio and eventually television, although their, their stint in television is short lived compared to Jack's. Um, But their success in these mediums, which mainly consists of a dominance through the, through the forties specifically, um, they not only succeeded, but they have transcended time, yeah. um, in a, in a way that, in a way that not even Bob Hope has really, uh, I think Bob Hope has transcended in a different way and not always to a positive effect. Um, and then red skeleton, I think has kind of been largely forgotten, but Bud and Lou are continually discussed and admired and praised. So, but before we get into the meat of it, uh, Willix, when is the first time you heard the dulcet tones of Lou <laughs> Costello going? <laughs> so the the first time I heard was uh, my grandfather gave me he actually gave me the three MGM Abbott and Costello movies on VHS. It was actually like a little box set. Like a three pack. Mm-hmm. If you yeah. Will, yeah. And, um, and I took them home and, um, so the first one I watched was, uh, lost in a harem. And uh, I think I was in sixth grade or fifth grade or something like that. And for years, I just watched those three tapes, um, Avon Costello in Hollywood, Rhea Rita and lost in a harem. And didn't, you know, find out till later. Uh, Jerry Seinfeld did a special on Jerry, uh, Jerry Seinfeld meets yes. Avin Costello. He did it uh, on, I, I think it was NBC, but he just, he just went through yeah. his love for the, the duo. And that was like, that's when I learned about their history and that they were on radio and that they had a TV show and all this stuff. And the first time I heard who's on first was on that. And so, yeah, um, so yeah, that that that's sort of my history with them. And then, um, and I've slowly I haven't seen all the Universal films that they did, but I've seen a handful. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah. I, I I tend to lean towards the monster ones just because of my obsession with Halloween. Yeah. But um, which which is more than fair because I believe that like if you if you look at their legacy like the a lot of the reason why they have transcended has to do with the monster the ones they did with yeah. the monsters, um, I think that and it's actually but it's also one of many reasons why they've transcended and it's funny that you bring up the Jerry Seinfeld special because that did not um, provide an introduction to me for Bud and Lou but I have I the first time I saw this special was on the Buck Privates Blu-ray that I picked up three or four oh, years ago. Oh, it's on ago. that? Oh, okay. Cool. Um, 
Yeah, it, it is on it. I, I was fortunate enough to secure a copy of the Digibook version, um, which looks very nice mm-hmm. on the shelf. Um, cause it was at second spin when guys, uh, there was a store called second spin and it was the most magical, wonderful <laughs> place that ever existed. And the, the, the guy who owned the building decided, well, I don't want a cool shop anymore in this area. I want to divide it up and make it several shitty shops. Oh, yeah. Um, and to this day they turned it into a full warehouse mattress warehouse place. So, um, that guy can go yeah. fuck himself, <clears throat> but uh, yes, I got the copy of it, and it has the button, uh, the Jerry Seinfeld meet Abbott and Costello one, and it's one of those specials that is in a lineage of tribute shows that exist for a several different comedians. I think that the most prominent one that I'm aware of is Kelsey Grammer salutes Jack Benny, which. It's it's great that these particular specials, if somebody's going to host them, they actually do tend to pick a comedian or a comic actor who actually relates to the material they're yeah. discussing. Because Jerry Seinfeld talking about Abbott and Costello makes a lot yeah. of sense. Um, uh, it would also like it actually would also be make a lot of sense for him to talk about Jack too because their comedy, their the show, the way their show was formatted is very similar to Jack's, where it's. It's the Benny shows and Seinfeld shows are kind of about nothing. Like they're about incidents rather than right. plots. Um, but Abbott and Costello is about wordplay and wordplay plays heavily into Jerry Seinfeld's uh, comedy mm-hmm. uh, specifically with Seinfeld. Um, and, uh, but it's also a special that I always marvel at these specials where somebody is talking about the past and they overproduce the hell out of (laughs) (laughs) the elaborate detail and like Jerry Seinfeld walking through that set. Yeah. Like this stage is burlesque stage. I'm just like, he's, he's like one step away from commenting on how ridiculous this all is, but I'm glad that he's holding his tongue. (laughs) Um, and, uh, but it's, but that's interesting that, that, that you, lived in a world for so long, not realizing how many films they had made because they made, uh, they made into like into the high double digits numbers of films. Right. Like it's, it's insane. They, uh, they, they basically, the universal films are the thing that saves universal from massive right. debt. Um, and they're, by the time they move past universal, um, they're, obviously past their prime but they don't like get anything further beyond universal apart from united artists and warner brothers um and mgm as we're about to discuss um i guess i should then just uh, unveil my origin story (laughs) with them i learned about abbott and costello um from the same tape set that um my dad got for me because I wanted to hear Bergen and McCarthy shows. And that's the same set where I got introduced to Jack. But uh, I was aware of them prior because of the monster films, but I hadn't seen them yet. And my entry point for Bud and Lou was not even who's on first. It was just one of their episodes when they were sponsored by Camel Cigarettes on that set. Um, And then eventually I got a... CD a button loose CD of sorts that had isolated uh, a version of who's on first. I don't believe it's the one from the chase and Sanborn hour, um, but um, uh, or the Kate Smith hour. I'm sorry. I don't believe it's the one from the Kate Smith hour from 1938, but it is one of the earlier ones. And I was, it was like a puzzle for me. 
to to dissect that routine. Um, and then in eighth grade, one of our assignments was actually to perform who's on first in front of like and like because we were it was an English dissection of wordplay um, and comedy of errors. They were relating Abbott and Costello to Shakespeare. Um, but at the time, I didn't real like the teacher didn't teach this, and I didn't even realize that who's on first is not something that they originated. This is a routine that has been passed down from burlesque act to burlesque act to burlesque act. It's like one of many routines that are uh, honed and sharpened over time that have just always existed. Um, yeah. The reason why we know about who's on first is thanks to Bud and Lou. Like they're the ones who very much popularize it on a mass scale. Um, the, uh, it's just, it's a, it's a timeless routine that it was actually not even performed first on film by Bud and Lou. It was performed in the movie Crack Nuts with Bert, and, uh, with Bert Wheeler and Robert Woolsey, who actually were in the original Rio Rita in 1927. Right. Um, so, um, their, their comedy did stand out to me. They didn't permeate me fully until years later when I finally sat down with, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. And what's amazing about Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein is that it's a movie that treats the monsters with so much respect while still being a perfect vehicle for Bud and Lou. Um, And I think that that film in particular has been the point of transcendence for um, generations knowing about Abbott and Costello is that they know about them because of the monsters and then they look back and see things like Buck Privates or One Night in the Tropics or Who Done It, um, which I'll be frank, Who Done It is my favorite Abbott and Costello movie. Um, and it's uh, it's a film that actually goes on to inspire Radio Land Murders, which is a movie that uh, George Lucas worked on that is actually one of the finest things he ever produced under his Lucasfilm banner. Um, <laughs> I, and, I have a soft spot for radio land murders. It's, it's a great movie. And you know, who, who would have thought that Steven Tobolowsky, Tobolowsky would be the person who invented television. Like, <laughs> right. right. I, I also think based off of Brian Ben Ben's performance in that movie, he should have played a live action version of bugs bunny. Yeah. Oh my God, he's stretching himself all over the damn place. Like, yeah. there's a manic energy that can only be described today's by today's standards with cocaine. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it is batshit crazy. And actually, that's a that's a PG movie that has nudity in it. It's super weird. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a yeah brief flash. Yeah, but like yeah. anybody <laughs> got that. <laughs> It's God, that movie's wonderful. And Christopher Lloyd um, playing Zoltan, uh, the sound man. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the film that I did with in film school Twombly the one I did with Spencer um, uh, Matty O'Connor played a, played the sound man in it and his name in the uh, in the script was Son of Zoltan <laughs> so, oh, that's awesome yeah so I was like I, I don't remember if we ever put the credit in there but I remember telling Matty going like you're this is your character you're the son of this guy and he's like can I see a picture of him and I showed him a picture of Christopher Lloyd and he's like I could do that. <laughs> um and so but anyway so yeah abbott and costello ended up kind of just sticking with me the way other radio and television comedians would um but they haven't always been my go-to um i I, uh, if i'll be honest i'm usually more more inclined to rewatch bob hope first um before i'll go back to abbott and costello but 
uh, this is interesting territory for me because this is uh, uh, this is among the Abbott and Costello movies I haven't seen until today is Rio Rita. Um, and I kind of didn't realize they had been ported over to MGM until you pointed it out to me. And I was like, oh, that's right, because those aren't part of the universal stuff. <laughs> yeah, um, they had a they had a clause uh, in a contract that said they could do one movie a year. Mm hmm. So they signed a three picture deal yeah. um, with MGM. And I think based on the performance of, I think this one, I guess it didn't do as well as they hoped. They didn't renew. Right. And then the but, deal, but they would get loaned out um, th two more times. So um, they, th but this, this production actually centers around a couple of key interesting events for Abbott and Costello. And, Yes. It'd be it'd be prudent to also mention like so this is two years after they debut in One Night at the Tropics, which catapults the, which gives them the clout to then for Universal to then stick them in Buck Privates. And Buck Privates is their first starring role, and what's more, Buck Privates is a huge hit. Yeah. And it's immense to going like, okay, we're gonna keep putting these guys in movies. From there, we get in the Navy, hold that ghost, keep them flying, and ride them cowboy. Um, and so when we get to Rio Rita, uh, this is 1942. This is early 1942. They are loaned out over to MGM to make Rio Rita. Um, now, Rio Rita as a property was originally a stage musical um, staged by Florence Ziegfeld. Um, and was centered around the team of Wheeler and Woolsey, as previously discussed. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it was a uh, it was one of the most expensive RKO films ever made. Um, and it ended up doing big business for them. Uh, but then MGM gets a hold of the property, and they decide to replace Wheeler and Woolsey with Abbott and Costello. What's what go ahead oh i was gonna say they they made it into a film in 1929 yeah that's the one um, R the rko one yeah yeah and then um they also said that the, the um rio rita they said it was one of the the stage the stage play it was like one of the last great musical comedies mm -hmm. um which i thought was interesting i just I, I to be honest i don't know i didn't know much about rio rita at all until i started researching for this episode yeah and i it's all fascinating yeah and it's actually the the finale it's the finale of the film i've never seen it but when i did the research um i was interested in the fact that it's another example of a musical that experiments with technicolor for one of its final sequences, like as a gimmick. Um, oh, the, yeah. The finale is photographed in two-color Technicolor. Um, the, we haven't talked about these films like in detail yet, but Hollywood Review of 1929 and um, Chasing Rainbows had similar uh, things tacked into them. So there's, uh, there's, a, there, there's a lot of experimentation with color at this point because nobody's... It's, not this, it, it's similar to sound where not everybody's sure if the technology is going to sell to the public. Um, and like the whole discussion of Technicolor is an entirely different thing that John Strelick and I are definitely going to be talking about because he expressed so much love and devotion for it. I'm like, oh, he's got to be the one we talk about it. Nice. <laughs> um, but, and actually Rio Rita is also 
it is such a hit for RKO. It's they wouldn't have another big hit like this until King Kong, uh, four years later, um, which ultimately would be the highest. Realistically, is like the the biggest hit RKO ever has because there are other films in their canon that are massive classics to us today, but monetarily wise, King Kong is the big daddy of them all. Right. Um, yeah. So. So when we go into MGM's adaptation of Rio Rita, they are bringing aboard to the director's chair um, S. Sylvan Simon, um, who is a director that I am very unfamiliar with, apart from the fact that he worked on The Big Store. Um, And The Big Store is a film that, oddly enough, is an interesting pairing with Rio Rita to look at comedians in the early 40s um, being put through the high concept ringer. Um, The Big Store, for anybody who doesn't know, I'm going to only bring it up briefly because The Big Store features a lot of broad slapstick, stunt-heavy comedy set in a department store. And for the Marx Brothers, Mm. it doesn't really work because the Marx Brothers can be physical, but... If you if you break down the characters that they play, Groucho is you know a smartass, Chico is a schemer, and Harpo is a silent comedian who can do physical stuff, but it's usually inter- intimate kind of slapstick. It's not big and broad. Um, and at this point, MGM not knowing what to do with the Marx Brothers, we're sticking them in these high concept, broad slapsticky finales, uh, intertwined with what they're actually good at doing. But Abbott and Costello definitely get away with it and i'm yeah it's interesting to note that abbott and costello is a comedy team that is able to do wordplay and slapstick in a in a form that combines gracefully um and i i'm i, I want to ask before we start diving into the plot of rio rita and abbott and costello's role in it um why do you think matt that Abbott and Costello are able to get away with both forms. Like what would be your takeaway from it? Oh man, that is a heavy question. Um, well, why are you carrying it? <laughs> um, Just put it down on the ground. Put it down. Put it down. It's so heavy. Um, um. So heavy. Can't even bother doing it. <laughs> I don't know. You know, it might just be the way because I I, like I know like Lou had a partner before he met Bud Abbott and that partner died. Yes. um, Shortly before they met and they they had a team and they from whatever from what I've read from their kids and like interviews of people that knew knew them, they that they were just kind of magic together. You know what I mean? They each brought something to the act that just clicked. Because when they arrived in Hollywood, they were an instant hit. Um, so I'm, I mean, that might be why they're able to get away with it. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Um, yeah, I, I, I feel like um, I'll, I'll, I'll break it down the way, the best way I can, because I do want to get into their histories a little bit. They worked, they first pair up together in burlesque, not vaudeville. Burlesque right. and vaudeville are two different ends of the same coin. Vaudeville was considered family friendly. Burlesque was considered risque. Um, in fact, not just considered; it is risque. 
Um, they first worked together at the Eltinge Burlesque Theater on 42nd Street in 1935. Um, and, uh, it resulted, as you said, from Lou's partner becoming ill. And uh, Abbott's wife is the one who encouraged them to just go go, go together permanently, um, mm, but along okay. with others. But like it was one of the cinch points for them, it seems. Um, and then they work through burlesque. And their first radio appearance, the Kate Smith Hour from February 3rd, 1938, um, uh, they actually had similar annotations in their voice and Lou had to start pitching his voice higher to that childish voice we all know and love. Um, Mm. Who's on first was performed the month after that first appearance when he had adopted that high pitched voice. Um, And then they were regulars on this show until they got a role on the Broadway review, the streets of Paris in 1939. And then they became a summer replacement show for Fred Allen in 1940, then join Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy in the Chase and Sanborn Hour in 1941, where the formation, their participation in the Chase and Sanborn Hour is interesting because they actually get like, like isolated spots in the grand scheme of Bergen and McCarthy's show because their show was not designed the way jacks or even bobs was it was like a series of vignettes with bergen and mccarthy but they would stick bud and lou in there when they went to the half hour format they really try to shove it in um and then they start doing films at universal two of their films buck privates and hold that ghost are adapted for lux radio theater um and then they start broadcasting in 1942 months after the release of rio rita for camel cigarettes and there's there's is a formatted show that consisted around their burlesque routines combined with bare thread plots um and i'd think arguably with most of abbott and costello's films the plots don't matter much um you're not there to watch a plot you're there to watch bud and lou um now uh i think the monster movies are the exception to that because there's a sincerity for both um but uh to me, what makes them work together and able to do both forms of comedy ends up coming down to the their image on uh, uh, in person of uh, a skinnier man and a larger man is not too dissimilar from a Stan and Laure- a St- a Laurel and Hardy, where you would want to yeah. see that physicality perform and the affectation of the voice that Lou has it almost seems he's crazy enough that he would be running around the place and hooping and hollering. Um, but it, right. but it seems like his form of slapstick and uh, buds too, in that respect is much more rooted in reality than say uh, three stooges. Uh, three stooges obviously takes it into the stratosphere of nonsense, but there's always something that kind of roots the slapstick of Bud and Lou to something that's real. Like uh, I, I tend to use the examples of how Lou gets scared in Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein where his reactions are overtly physical and super campy, but they are rooted in the reality of like, well, of course, if you were scared of Dracula, you'd be responding the same way. (laughs) Um, Right. And so that's, and we actually have instances of it in this movie and we can probably jump into the plot right now on this because this is also another instance of a film that, much like many comedies featuring great comedians, 
they feel necessary to stick in a love story. Um, and um, now yeah. <laughs> the thing with Rio Rita is the love story was there first. But um, when you watch Rio Rita, my ultimate takeaway, I will say this up front at the top, is that it's similar to the Marx Brothers. Like, this love plot is not needed. D- give me something else, please. <laughs> like, but <laughs> nevertheless, it's still a fun time, and we're going to get into it right now. Now, we'll go through the credits here. Directed by S. Sylvan Simon, produced by Pandro Berman, written by Richard Connell and Gladys Lehman, with special material for Bud and Lou by John Grant. Um, uh, not the, not the last time. Um, and a lot of their credited material, a lot of the material that Bun Lu have comes from their writers. And then it's stuck into these other scripts, um, starring right. Bud Abbott, Lou Castello, Catherine Grayson, John Carroll, reprising his role from the first Rio Rita, Patricia Dane, Tom Conway, Peter Whitney, Barry Nelson, Arthur Space, uh, Mitchell Lewis, Eros Velusia, Norman Abbott, and King Baggett. Uh, so, yeah, we've got an interesting cast here with music by Herbert Stolthart, cinematography by George J. Folsey, uh, edited by Ben Lewis, was released on March 11th, 1942. Um, at the beginning of the plot, um, we open up in a pet store, because why not? <laughs> a pet store in New York, to be specific. <laughs> and um, All right. we get... The first of many infamous routines from Bud and Lou. This one is Mrs. Pike's Peak. Mrs. Yes, Pike's now Peak. The, now, the concept of this bit is that Mrs. Pike has a Pekingese, and Abbott, uh, and Lou does not know what a Pekingese is, so he thinks he has to get a peek at Mrs. Pike, and he wonders, why can't I get a good look? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um and this is a bit that they've done on the radio prior to this and after the fact. It's a it's a classic bit. Um what I find interesting about it is is that anytime they're filming these routines, um they Bud and Lou automatically are much more cinematic of a comedy team than any other pairing because because the wordplay is so rapid fire. It almost makes sense to film it that way, to to edit it the way that they edit it, where we start off on a, a medium wide locked off shot, and then we'll move in for coverage on both. And it's the editing is keeping up with their banter. Um, yeah. And I I noticed it primarily because when I was rewatching stuff for like Jack and Rochester, uh, theirs doesn't work because it's relying on an elicited reaction from an audience and thus it doesn't work. But Bud and Lou's, because it's so rapid fire, it doesn't require an audience response. Like it almost feels like you, 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 it, yeah, you wouldn't even need to like, uh, you could probably stick them in that two shot and you'd be fine. But like that, the editing suggests as such that you want to keep up on that same pace. So you want it to feel as chaotic as the wordplay itself. Um, yeah. Uh, and then this is also where Bud and Lou get into the trunk of Ricardo Montera. And I feel like talking about the plot for uh, for anybody but Bud and Lou puts us down the well of obvious tropes <laughs> that uh, that we see in films of this ilk. So, like, Matt... But, Let's let's get this off the bat. This love plot's not needed, right? <laughs> I, I I don't I don't think it's needed, but I mean it's 
it's not like it's not annoying either, you know, and it's also interwoven with them fighting Nazi spies. So, yes, that see, that's that to me is the kicker on it. And also, here's a positive point that I will give for it. While I don't think it's necessary uh, in the grand scheme of comedy duos or comedy groups uh, working to uh, get the two lovers together, which is a common trope in the Marx Brothers later films. Um, I think Bud and Lou do it better than the Marx Brothers. Yeah, do. because for what for for whatever reason, it feels like Bud and Lou would be that, um, uh, would be that active to do such a thing. Whereas it feels feels like the Marx Brothers could give two shits about getting the lovers together, <laughs> but they force themselves to think it's possible. Um, because Bud and Lou, who are playing Doc and Wishy, by the way, uh. They 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 do seem genuinely grateful for the fact that they get uh, taken out of a jam by Rita, uh, but the the basic plot of this film ends up being that Ricardo Montera is going to sing at a three day fiesta um, uh, at Hotel Visto, Vista Del Rio, and <laughs> uh, their radio on their radio station on there. their radio station. Yes, and uh, this is it's interesting that this film comes across the way it does this is at a time when uh world war ii is just kicking off and already the u.s state department and the military are looking into ways to spread goodwill to south america and to countries across our borders in order to establish a goodwill ambassadorship uh to keep them out of wanting to side with nazi germany um and what I find wonderful about the film is is that it doesn't treat Hispanic culture as a uh, stereotype, really. Like, it almost seems like it's not even existing. Yeah. The, the only counter argument I would say to that is there's only actually one person on the cast of Mexican descent playing, um, like, playing. someone of Mexican descent. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, who, Which would, I mean, would definitely be Eros Valusia. <laughs> Um, oh no no it's it's actually um mariana um rita's oh yes like, Mari- Ava rita's housekeeper or something yes. Ava P- Eva Puig. Yeah. yes yeah yeah mm-hmm. that's right i did i did forget about her and she but she is not treated like a prop the way let's no. say native americans are treated in a john ford movie <laughs> like, right um in fact she's she's only in two scenes um, right but yeah. yes and, and then yes like now the consequence as we said though is that john carroll is He's not donning brown face, but he's down. Yeah, he, he's he's got the accent's pretty thick. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. it's it's a very uh, stereotypical accent. However, it doesn't um, it doesn't delve into negative stereotypes. So the good news, Willix, is that we won't have to really talk about anything problematic today, which is a relief. <laughs> right, <laughs> the goddamn relief. Um, yeah, he 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 does just kind of act like a normal guy throughout yeah. the whole thing. Yeah, a normie, a normal sleazy a norm, guy. A normie. <laughs> Let's talk about Ricardo's ability to keep shit in his pants. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's not he's not like he he has the rock it's it today we'd call this the rock star mentality. Right. And so much so that apparently having that much sex has caused him to forget about his lost love from ten his, years prior. <laughs> right. His lost childhood love. Yeah. What and, a sad Yeah, it's a, just, it, <laughs> it's a sad life to, but hey, Willix, don't worry. Doc and Wishy are going to get them together because it's true love. It's true love. True love. (laughs) It's true love because, because yes, as the car drives off to the hotel, (laughs) 
the Hotel Vista del Rio. <laughs> this is such a mouthful for the name of this hotel. Um, <laughs> we get our first instance of Rita Winslow, played by Catherine Grayson. This is her debut film role. And um, uh, she is way too in love with this person she met 10 years ago. <laughs> yes. She's got a picture of him off to the side of her her nightstand. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah it's it, it, yeah it's it's just not uh yeah it's like why <laughs> she, she she never moved on she never moved on you can do so much better Catherine. yeah <laughs> like, yeah <laughs> oh, i'm sorry rita rio rita to be specific she is rita of the rio uh, that's right and uh but yeah she is she is off to uh track down ricardo who is on his way and she's all flustered worrying about like will he remember me or i'm sure he'll remember me like she's very actually very confident that he will remember her um she's about to get her heart broken but before we get to that we go over to the hotel which i guess she owns it doesn't really uh, i mean she she owns the hotel her father owned the hotel her father died and she runs she owns the hotel but she does nothing to manage it whatsoever cuz she's too worried about ricardo <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah she doesn't run the radio station or anything like that yeah she's she's very much like a silent partner going like look like like my dad my dad liked this shit. I don't, but um, I'm technically still in charge because it's the only way I can get Doc and Wishy out of Nazi hands. <laughs> um, and uh, and that's actually where we get into the Nazi plot because we have uh, the uh, the hotel manager Maurice, played by Tom Conway, um, hanging out with his Nazi lackeys who. Uh, I'm going to be honest, Willix, a lot of them blend together for me in terms of their look, except for one. Uh, Peter Whitney playing Jake reminded me of Adam Goldberg. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> From fucking Saving Private Ryan <laughs> amongst other com- uh, films of the nineties. But I was just like, why is Adam Goldberg a Nazi? This makes no sense. <laughs> um, and they are getting delivered a package of apples, which, uh, are not apples. They actually think they're bombs at one point. <laughs> And not right. not Adam Goldberg is th- afraid to pull the pin, which would have been the stem, uh, but he does pull it, and it's actually a radio. Um, and uh, their plan is to put this in the pockets of several of their uh, so uh, their uh, Nazi spies, uh, so that they can receive orders to, amongst other things like sabotage uh, shipyards, uh, plane, airplane factories, etc. So this is a, a form of sabotage, if you will. And this is their grand Nazi scheme. Uh, right. and then they, um, you know, we established, we established Rio, uh, Rio Rita has like, you know, like, thank you, Maurice for taking care of the hotel. And thanks for not being clearly a Nazi spy who just manages the hotel and radio <laughs> station. <laughs> and he's like, well, thank you, I guess. <laughs> and then we, trounce along forward ricardo arrives at the hotel but and lou check to see where they are but then they get back in immediately because <laughs> they don't want to get caught and ricardo stays at the hotel he is um uh we we learn uh from uh so more we learn that there's another uh added element into the mix with lucette uh brunswick played by patricia dane who is instructed by Maurice to uh even though it, it he he won't be an issue Ricardo won't be an issue 
uh, it wouldn't hurt for Lucette to keep Ricardo occupied. And so yes. thus we have the the beginnings of our formation of the love triangle that is unnecessary, <laughs> but still <Right>. wonderfully <laughs> fun and adds further things to the plot for Bud and Lou specifically. Uh, and so the car gets driven out to a service station to be repaired, which I have this feeling, Willix, that the only reason it puttered out on them was because Bud and Lou are putting extra weight in the trunk. Weight in the back. That's yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. So, like, like that that's the formation of this gag that we get. We get our first big set piece here uh, with the car being elevated in a way that seems unreal. Like, how high do you need your car elevated to be worked on? <laughs> right. Unless you have that guy from The Simpsons who, uh, the, the the tall guy in the short car. <laughs> right. <laughs> Are you laughing at the size of me and my automobile? <laughs> do you know what that does to my feelings? <laughs> yeah. Um, and so we get this, we get this elaborate set and like, I, I watched this movie via Prime, uh, and the movie comes from Warner Archives, so the transfer's really good to the point yeah. where, I got to be honest, Willix, I, apart from one moment where I saw The Wires, it's all yeah. pretty fucking seamless. Like, oh, it's, yeah. It's superb slapstick, big, broad set piece humor. Like, mm-hmm. and... I, I I don't know. Like I, I would love to ask you your favorite part of this moment, but I'll I'll say mine. It's when he's looking down for the first time and you see him shaking and wobbling on the <laughs> on the good, yeah. on the back fender of the car. And he's making the whole car shake. Yeah, he's going like. Whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and like, but I want to I want to know for each of these set pieces what you will like about it because like I, like to me I just like the. Uh, the, the speed of it like it moves with an efficient clip <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah um my favorite part of this set piece is when um bud is on top of the garage <laughs> and 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 lou tosses him up the the gas hose and he goes he goes, all right, I'll get you down. You know, ho- hold on. You holding on? He goes, yeah, I'm holding on. And then he just tugs on the hose and like makes Bud or um makes Bud fall. Yeah. He goes, well, I got you down, didn't I? You know, yeah. Because it feels like something I would do. <laughs> I, there's a good line in there also where he's going like, get me down, get me down. He's like, jump here, jump into my hat. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, the, the now the, this this whole uh set piece sequence ends in a wonderful way which by the way first of all ricardo says like i wanted to bring this up ricardo sp- sends that like you know like the the car worked uh great out of new york and the moment i got into san antonio pop um and i'm like yeah. and he heard funny noises in the car and i'm like yeah there are funny noises in the car because there are two comedians in your trunk right right yeah <laughs> like it's not like i'm trying to actively talk to the movie but i'm just like well that's this is cute now i'm gonna reply <laughs> right <laughs> um and it's like wonderfully blocked too like the blocking on this scene like to coordinate all these different shots and oh it, yeah, but it moves seamlessly. Like it's like not every comedy of this era is able to pull off the slapstick like this with a smoothness. But the all these gags feel smooth. Um, yeah, and I I have this uh, 
wonderful question that is going to permeate the discussion and, and any other Abbott and Costello discussion going forward on this show. How many injuries does Lou have over the years that he is still standing and walking around? Because right. <laughs> the amount of times, like, so let's forget about the amount of times that Abbott slaps him in the face. <laughs> Oh, if yeah. we're look, like, and I'm not one to look into the logic of a movie too much because I'm usually just like, it's a movie, suspend your disbelief. But I do have the question of just like, if I were to apply geek or nerd logic to it the way it's applied to Star Wars or Star Trek, realistically, Lou would be a battered, broken human being. <laughs> like, right. Lou, Lou would not be standing. <laughs> and what I, yeah. what's great about that this comedy is, is that. Abbott and Costello are cartoon characters essentially come to life. Like, yes, they are not, they are not bound by the physics of normal reality. They can literally, right. they are one atom away from being able to stretch like a Bob Clampett cartoon. Like that's, that's how flexible they are. Um, yes. And I think that they end up being much more, uh, uh, dynamic with that and that's the reason why they succeed with these broad set pieces yeah and also like they've been practicing all of these mm-hmm. all of these gags for years together you know what i mean so they were they were already honed and it's an autopilot knew, for them it's, it's yeah they, they they yeah their timing was already down it, it was just practiced so many times and they because they, they did them for years yeah. um and an element i'd have to imagine that elements of it are uh, of the physicality of it are brought over from vaudeville or from burlesque and then they are elaborated upon for these moments so like yeah when they're down on the ground and you have just them talking uh that physicality is honed in from burlesque these bigger set pieces they're expanding on their knowledge of theatrical blocking like right it's yeah it's pretty astounding to watch but then the nazis catch up to them um, they trying to figure out what they're doing here, and you know, <laughs> like any but like any Bud and Lou adventure, they don't really belong anywhere, but they're here. Get used to it, <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> th- like it, it's, we'll go through favorite lines in this film, but my one of my favorite interactions in this particular moment is when he's talking to uh, Lou is talking to Jake, and he goes, "I'll tear you to pieces. Yes, you will. Yes, I will. Yes, I, I just, will. I just sent you what." <laughs> <laughs> And then they get them stuck in that car and elevate them. And like, I don't know how in the world Maurice and Jake got down from there. (laughs) Cause it took, it took Bud and Lou quite a bit to get down from there, but (laughs) (laughs) right. (laughs) Um, (laughs) They probably just waited for the mechanic to come back after they passed out. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's kind of like the movie frozen. (laughs) The the Adam, uh, the Adam, uh, uh, Adam Green film, not not uh, the Disney film, right? <laughs> um, and uh, and I love that they have the gall to just leave them up there, just going like, yeah, fuck them. Like they don't know, they don't even know they're Nazis yet, Matt. Matt. They just they just assume they're up to no good. <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like they they are secretly intuitive about bad evil people, <laughs> um, and like and I and they are you know they are delightful Antifa members by the way. If we're gonna get down to the bottom line of this like oh, oh okay they're, right. they're the, they are the antifa members you want <laughs> um now we get a little bit more of this love plot uh because we get we get a we get a scene involving 
Rita and Ricardo interacting. And as stated before, Ricardo has fucked all of his short-term memory out of his system. So he doesn't remember (laughs) who Rita is. (laughs) And it actually plays into Rita finally like making a smart choice to be like, no, fuck this asshole who doesn't remember me. (laughs) Yeah. She she doesn't like what he's turned into. Mm -hmm. Yes. He's gone. He's gone New York or elite or uh, East coast Hollywood. If you will. <laughs> and they he tries the seduction he tries to to win her favor when all of a sudden they are interrupted by what matt willicks the rangers yeah they're having a nice duet out on the desert yep uh pl- playing one of ricardo's own records yeah that she sings <laughs> along to by the way because yeah because her her devotion to ricardo and his love is so deep <laughs> Yeah. Um, Yeah. But yeah, they are singing this. They are singing amidst this ballad, this seduction that Ricardo's playing on when all of a sudden the Rangers show up. The Rangers show up. The singing Rangers. The singing Rangers. And (laughs) I texted you this last night when watching the film for the first time. And I rewatched it this morning as well. The, um, the, uh, The ambition of this scene is greater than its execution. However, it is still fucking amazing. Like, Oh yeah. Cause, cause <laughs> the, and the only reason I say it, that the ambition is greater than the execution is that naturally because of the distance at which they're at and they're trying to show these guys singing while moving the, obviously the track is not synced to any close up really that they have. Um, right. Uh, or like uh medium wide when they're closed in on Ricardo and Rita it works because they're working off of um, uh, 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 rear projection, and uh, but the but the grandiosity of it is just incredible. Like it is, it moves. It's elegant. It is. It is MGM to a T of just like mm-hmm. we're gonna make the best version of this possible. They really, really did know how to nail a musical right off the bat. Um, yeah. And, and like it's actually an example of how MGM could take something even as simple and probably not as important to their overall yearly plan uh, as Rio Rita and still were adding in that MGM grandiosity that is mm-hmm. and uh, and and you know they're it's these Rangers they're singing about you know <laughs> ride we ride the border all day long. <laughs> <laughs> like just i mean now to when i think about it today it has a different connotation but at this point i'm just like this is just happy cowboy time like i just gotta yeah. relax and and actually what's more they uh i will say that uh watching john carroll get involved with it like the rear projection is pretty flawless but i don't know if you noticed this willix mm-hmm. i think this is the first time i've ever noticed this in any hollywood movie of this era period I noticed the rear projection in one of the moments shaking. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Like, and it's not, and it's not to, it's not a downer note by any stretch. I just, I've never seen it before. Cause usually the rear projection, you could tell it's there, but like the back screen isn't shaking. I swear to God, I saw the sh- oh. screen shake. Yeah. I think, I think it did. Yeah. yeah. And I think I saw that. Yeah. And and it's, and again, not, it's, a, it's not a detriment to like, you know, like things happen on movies. I've just never noticed it before because it's just like, it's not something my brain is used to seeing the, right. the, the illusion disrupted. Um, yeah. Cause like, I think you and I are in a, in a same pairing where we let ourselves go when it comes to those 
specific technical tricks. Like the rear mm-hmm. projection doesn't really bother us. It's why we, it's, I mean, it's certainly why I still enjoy Hitchcock's movies uh, of a later era because I'm, I, the rear projection for me, I get lost in it. So I, it doesn't matter to me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, I, I love rear projection so much just because watching, you know, old movies growing up, I, I kind of like find, I tried to find a way to stick it in all of my short films, never could really make it work out, mm-hmm. but it's always something that's in my head. I'm like, no, I just need to do rear projection because I need to do it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. it has a certain pleasing aesthetic, you know, for me. Yeah. Which actually, like, I mean, like this isn't directly related to Rio Rita per se, but back, rear projection in general, like I think the first, one of the few times you actually notice it in a modern movie is actually Pulp Fiction. When, um, when Bruce Willis oh, is yeah. in the cab and uh, talking about how he killed the other man and, uh, didn't realize he was dead, and then he um, doesn't wear a mask in a supermarket. And everything. <laughs> oh, God, how does that man keep stepping on his own feet? <laughs> you know, I, I think, you know, when, like, I'm assuming when you get older, you just care about less. You know what I mean? Yeah, care about and less if, about your job acting. And <laughs> well, and, 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 you know, and especially if you're, if you're someone like Bruce Willis who has, um, an ego that's almost too big for this planet. You know, it's just, it just, it just makes for a bad combination. You know what I'm thinking, Willix? Why didn't he play ego in, um, guardians of the galaxy volume two? <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? I, I think James Gunn I, I, I'm, was smart. I'm assuming James Gunn wanted to save himself a headache. <laughs> yeah. He's just like, no, Kevin and Len already told me about him. I'm right. Like, no, yeah. no, no. Kurt's yeah. got an ego, but it's rainable. <laughs> you can rain. Yeah. You can rain Kurt Russell in because Kurt Russell has respect for human beings. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, we're not here to talk about Bruce Willis. I don't know why I went on that tangent. I'm sorry, but sorry. <laughs> the Rangers, the Rangers song itself, also like this is actually something it reminded me of. Do you remember in Robin Hood Men in Tights when? Uh, the sheriff of Rottingham and his men are approaching Carrie Carrie Elwes for the first time, and you hear them going. Like they're doing, I haven't seen that movie in a long time, but I that sounds familiar. Yeah, I, I'll post a link to it for people like to see the comparison. But like they're them giving themselves their own fanfare. My immediate callback <laughs> that when I saw the Rangers scene was like them giving themselves their own fanfare, and it's specifically the moment where the Rangers are whistling in unison, where I was just like, "This is so friggin' cool!" Like <laughs> I was just like, I was balled over by that scene. Uh, but unfortunately, it ends all too quickly. Uh, but uh, the uh, uh, th- this is where we get the moment where uh, Bud and Lou sneak into the office, and they talk about a greenhouse can still be a white house. A, a white house can still be a greenhouse, and a red house right. can still be a greenhouse. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta be colorblind. <laughs> <laughs> um, and they go in and they steal the apples, and we get another. This is a this is a reference to Bud and Lou on a visual scheme is the idea of basically Bud does this a lot where he scams Lou out of uh, property or money or anything by providing the worst math ever that Lou falls for because that's Lou's character. Yeah. Uh, is this is this the 20 apples? Yes, the 20 apples where he's like I've got 20, you've got 22 and he goes you split one down the middle. He split one down. He split two makes one. 
<laughs> and then he well actually it's funny because in this one i hadn't really realized it before but but ha- lou has the 22 and he goes like how many of you got 22 how many have i got 20 and he goes like i'm sorry and he hands one yeah, over yeah. to him yeah. and then they try Never, to eat yeah. it and they're Never going goes, Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> my bad and <laughs> <laughs> and they they bite into the apples. They're terrible. I, I I love a line where Bud goes like, "One of them might be good." <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. There are there's a dis- can we dispel something for people? But Lou is not the only funny member of uh, Abbott and Costello. Bud is super funny. <laughs> I agree. I his his I I think every time he slaps Lou in the face, it's just it's. It's so hard, and the timing is perfect. Yeah, it just. Uh. He is, he is. Um, I, now I usually make the claim that George Burns is the the premier straight man, but there's a limit to that because I think George's abilities as a straight man are much more restrictive, and when he breaks out of it, it's great. Abbott is the best straight man because he uh, provides much more for Lou to work off of. And in the process with the material as it, as it's written, Abbott comes off just as funny. It's just that the context shifts so much. Like yeah. the, the like yeah. the the content of it shifts so much that it's usually going to Lou, but occasionally it goes back to Abbott and you're trying to keep up with the dialogue in certain instances. And generally when you listen to who's on first, actually Abbott is is on an equal par with it because he's so committed to the reality of these baseball players named after <laughs> named after like who, what, where like that, right. that form of humor. Like that's why Abbott is considered by many to be the greatest straight man is because he was able to add to the proceedings rather than to just stand there and go, Gracie, how's your brother? Um, right. And, uh, and what's more, he actually has, he has great moments down the line with dialogue too. Um, and we're going to get more of it because as they find out the apples are fake, uh, right. and, uh, they throw them in actually a, uh, uh, a dog eats one and <laughs> several, several, uh, donkeys. Yep. Several, eat them. yep. Several donkeys eat them. When the dog eats it, it starts playing a, a commercial for something called grapeo mix. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the dog starts spinning. Yeah. And I'm, and I kind of want to know what the fuck grapeo mix would be. <laughs> <laughs> I'm assuming I'm assuming it's a grape drink, like a like a tang kind of thing. But we'll like we'll never know. It's not a real product. Willix will never. We need to make Grapeo a thing. Like you know how Slushos a thing in uh, the Abrams universe. Yes. <laughs> Let's make Grapeo. Grapeo. <laughs> I think I think it, I can, I think we can do it. I think it can be done. We need to be different than other drink mixes, though. So it's grapes mixed with. Oh God! What's a good pairing? Grapes and pear drink. That's it. That, let's let's go. Grape, grapes and grapes and pear drink. <laughs> Try our grape pear drink. Grapeo. It's got grapes and pears. And pears. <laughs> and you just give a wicked smile to the camera as if though you've just committed a sin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's got grapes and pears. And pears. <laughs> Grapeo mix. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, now, once again, we, we we go back to Ricardo and Rita, and that's when Rita and Ricardo come upon Lucette, and of course, that's when the love triangle begins. And um, 
yeah, we we don't need to keep harping on the same thing. We'll go back to Abbott and Costello here because they have a conversation about starvation. <laughs> which, That's right. Which leads to my favorite trope is somebody gets so hungry that they look at the other person as if they're food. <laughs> <laughs> like this nice sly cannibal joke. The only difference between this is in a cartoon is that Abbott or uh, Costello does not turn into a hot dog for uh, for a mirage sake. Right. But then we get their discussion about mirages, and it it's led in by this wonderful line with like, "You ever go to school, stupid?" Yes, and I came out. Yes, the same I way. came out the same way. <laughs> How many years did you go to school? Counting kindergarten? Yes, one. One, one year. <laughs> <laughs> no, I won't. <laughs> <laughs> and they have the discussion about mirages and loot. Uh, Bud takes a nap, and suddenly Lou sees uh, the that a whole plate of food has been brought out to this particular area that they're sitting in, and he, <laughs> he goes to yeah. eat it, and he says like, "Like Doc, Doc, I'm eating a mirage. Tastes just like chicken." <laughs> <laughs> I love when he dips his uh, chicken wing in the beer, thinking it's milk. And he goes brown milk, <laughs> and then he goes that ain't milk, and that then he tosses milk. the beer on Bud Abbott. Yeah, <laughs> and I actually, actually, we should talk about Lou as a character here too, because. Lou, Lou is relatable to me because he doesn't seem to know his self worth. <laughs> right. <laughs> He's just like, a, like there's a there like he literally, I th- it's it's the definition of the Lou Costello child mold, mold where he just like there's a there's a lot of insecurity, anxiety, and self doubt. It's one of the reasons why Abbott and Costello work for children really because. Yes. They, they relate to Lou. They relate to Lou. You can relate to Lou at a very young age. Uh, and like, like if I had been exposed to it much earlier, I probably would have had that same reaction. And like, realistically, it probably would have affected me even greater than Jack or Bob did. Uh, yeah. And we get the, we get that as they're eating and as, as Abbott fi- finally realizes that it's an actual thing, like it's actual food. Bud, in his in- inimitable way of trying to scheme his friend, <laughs> hmm. he, he keeps Lou around to abuse him. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he needs a patsy. He needs a fall guy. He needs a, he needs a guy to say, pay the man to. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And he tries to convince him that he doesn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, they bet their chickens against each other. It, if you're, so you're not in Baltimore, you're not in Philadelphia, you're not in Washington. If you're not in Baltimore, Philadelphia, Washington, you couldn't be here. If you're not here, uh, if you're not here, then you must be someplace else. You must be someplace else. Yeah, and, and, and if you're someplace else, you must not be here. Yeah, and is and look at this the, the the elaborate schemes that it takes to get a rotisserie chicken falls into an existential crisis. <laughs> <laughs> Right. I want that chicken so bad. I'm going to provide a mental dilemma for my friend. <laughs> yeah, and I and I love Lou's counter argument. It was like, oh yeah, if I'm not here, how can I hold on to these chickens? Yeah, exactly. So he go yeah. and what and it's great is that he. This is like that testament to the dialogue that we talked about. The the way their banter works is that more often than not, Lou is repeating what Bud says. Yes, and he repeats it even faster than Bud does, and then provides an immediate response to it. Where So he goes, like, if I'm not in Philadelphia and I'm not in, not, not in Washington, 
then and, and then I'm not here. I must be someplace else. Well, if I'm not, well, if I'm someplace else, how can I be eating here right now? Like that, right? Yeah, that, yeah. That that like that internal logic works at a pace that like I've always said that Gracie Allen, as a character, her logic makes absolute sense because it makes sense to her. Abbott yeah. and Costello fall in that same pattern where their logic makes sense because it makes sense to them. More often than not, it's usually Bud trying to distort Lou's reality. <laughs> right. <laughs> and like not, or in other cases, Bud saying something completely logical and Lou not understanding the understanding basic things. So right. like <laughs> terminology, like, like the, uh, like, there should be a whole podcast dedicated to wordplay in this era because there it falls into several different categories, whether it's screwball slapstick or uh, just, you know, particular like intelligent um, uh, co- comedy writing. Like there's various different like I would call that like um, snobby like writing. Um, yes. Where but it falls into different patterns and Bud and Lou's in particular work so fast and work so intricately. But if you broke down, if you looked at the script for who's on first, it's not that a long, it's not that long a script. And it, but, but because so much happens in it, you feel like it's more elaborate and uh, detail woven. Um, But in reality, it's very much a simple matter of repetition and uh, falling into a pattern. Like they work into a pattern with it. Um, And then, the Nazis break up their picnic. <laughs> uh, That's right. And uh, actually, the stunt work here is wonderful too. Like it, it's great all across the board. Here in particular, it's great because Bud shoves Lou down to the ground to then trip. Uh, I think it's Jake uh, over over him, and Bud runs away from Lou. So he used it as a way to get away for himself. He doesn't give two shits about what happens to Lou. Right. Right. <laughs> and Lou. <laughs> Lou does this thing that I think is amazing. He distracts the Nazi by raising his one arm so that he can punch him with the other arm. <laughs> He's like, "Look over here! Look yeah, over here! Yeah. What? Pull!" <laughs> yeah. And then he does, he does something that I love in movies if it's done correctly, where he runs through the bushes and the bushes form into a figure of him. Now it doesn't look as great as other instances of this, but. What he does after that is amazing. He starts going around in a circle with Jake. At one point, Jake stops, and then Lou says, "Excuse me," and then continues going in the circle. <laughs> right. Yeah, and then then two waiters get involved in the chase, going through through this circle. Yeah, and Lou stops running, pulls out a chair, and just starts watching them run. And then the waiters stop, and, and then Lou goes, "No, no, no." The Let big the big guy, guy go first. <laughs> and then he's like, thanks. <laughs> move around. The, the cordiality of this, uh, of, of the Bud and Lou humor is wonderful because nobody, um, here, I, here's a question, Willix. Have you ever heard of the, of uh, the idea that I'll bring it back to the Marxists, for example, have you ever heard about the theory that like in the Paramount films, the characters surrounding the Marx brothers are aware that they're in the Marx brothers movie and they have to fall in those rules. And so they just follow the rules. <laughs> oh, I haven't heard that. No. Okay. So it's like the difference between Paramount and MGM's films is that in the Paramount films, the characters around the Marx Brothers are fully aware that they're in a Marx Brothers movie and they uh, and they logically just go along with it. In the MGM oh, okay. films, they are actively disrupting a regular movie. <laughs> <laughs> and uh and then with with Abbott and Costello I feel like the two merge where 
the characters in their in their reality are aware that they're in a Nabbit and Costello movie, but they also don't care about Bud and Lou's feelings. <laughs> <laughs> and that's exemplified with the Lucette thing, because we'll talk about it because it's the 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 blocking of it is interesting. Um, but so yeah, they they go on they, they go chasing after Lou. Lou runs under a table underneath a bunch of women who squeal. <laughs> And then he comes back out from under the table and he says my favorite line in the movie, which is a toast to the guy who's chasing me. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> he runs away. And then, yeah, he throws the champagne in the guy's face. Yeah, it's, That's my favorite toast in a movie ever. Now, now Matt, is this moment. <laughs> oh, a toast. The guy who's chasing me. <laughs> and then they... They get caught, but then Rita sees them and takes pity on them <laughs> and lets them go. And they ask her if uh, if they have a if she has a job for them. And she goes, "What can you do?" And, she, and Blue goes, "Nothing. We don't even do that good." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which I feel, Matt, that's my life story. Like if I'm going in for like a, a job, I'm just like, mom, I, I can't do jack shit. And I'm not really yeah. great at that either. So I, I can follow directions. I, kind your, of. I'm your clay to mold. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. And they become the house detectives. And, uh, actually like as they're becoming house detectives, they also meet Ricardo for the first time and they're not too impressed or whatever. And they Lou backs up into a cactus. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And yeah. Bud looks at it and he says a great line going like, shame on you, stealing a lady's plants. Yeah. And he goes, put, put it, it back. back where you got it. Put it back. And he shoves that cactus back into his ass. <laughs> My favorite um, bit in the whole movie is, I think, around this scene with the dog. Oh. We're coming to that. Before that, I do. Oh, okay. We, we, right. we are literally coming up on it. But before that, we have to establish that this is where okay. we get Bud and Lou saying, "You know what? We've got to get these two lovers together." And, and oh, that's right. That's right. And, and he and and Bud, much like everything else he does, has to con Lou into understanding that they need to get these two lovers together. The reason <laughs> why it works better than in the Marx Brothers is that Bud seems to have the interest in it. He seems to care because he wants to repay Rita Rita's kindness and he cons Lou Costello into having emotional stakes. <laughs> That's right. You're like we have to get we have to we have to do right by Rita. We have to get them <laughs> together. <laughs> and the and the way they're going to do this is to uh have a uh, wishy seduce uh Lucette who is the other in the triangle. <laughs> right. So Would you you think Bud would do would would volunteer for that himself. Well, yeah, because he seems later on he seems more than willing to go on a date and ditch Lou when his life is in danger. <laughs> like, right, right. <laughs> it's kind of weird. I think ultimately, if it's inconvenient to Bud, he's going to sacrifice his friend. Like he's right. Mm -hmm. Which and which actually the the idea of sacrifice comes up later, and I have a feeling that the joke connects to something happening on in their actual life. But we'll get there. They go into the hotel, and they're 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 performing their job as a house detective. At one point, Lou looks in the wrong room, and then follows. Uh, uh, tries to follow a woman into another hotel room and 
Bud goes, oh, no, you don't. And he goes into the room. <laughs> Lou doesn't <laughs> see it. And he goes like, uh, he goes, Doc, Doc, are you in there? And the camera is positioned as such that you look up at the top. And Bud has gotten up to the top and goes, now, what would I be doing in here? What would I be doing in here? <laughs> Another example of a funny line by Bud that that, yeah. that it immediately fuels the best reaction out of Lou going like, wow. And, and he's like, oh, I'm sorry. Yep. And then he goes into Lucette's room and we get our first instance of Lou Costello being this like eternalized virgin because he is bashful as shit. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Which is this is something that happens in all the other films too. He's just he's a he's a big old kid. And um in this one Lucette is thinking that he's the man who does the laundry and delivering her unmentionables and at one point she mentions, "Did you get the pink nightgown and do you have the pink yeah. nightgown?" And Lou goes, "No, ma'am, never wear it." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that—that's when she realizes that there's somebody in the room with her, and she chases him out immediately. She saw him before in the uh, garden, and actually wanted to have them ousted, and that's when Rita saved them. Yeah, um, so he he runs out of the room having failed from seduction, and he goes like, "Guess I guess I'm not her type. I'm nobody's type. I don't even <laughs> like myself." <laughs> I, was, I love when he when he first goes in that room and she goes, boy, put it on the sofa. And he just like shrugs and then sits down. Yeah, because he's about to sit in the chair. <laughs> and then he goes and sits on the fucking sofa. Oh, my God. They just, the, uh, just, the misunderstanding is excellent. Yeah. And this is when we get the talking dog. And That's right. The talking dog. Because so like the setup obviously is is that the dog ate the apple with the ra- that has the radio in it, and yes. <laughs> he does this reaction that is not too dissimilar from uh, some of the coffin scenes in um, Hold That Ghost and then Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, where he doesn't notice the irregularity at first, then does right. a double take, and then just like goes white as a ghost and (laughs) this one this one in particular i love it possibly more than uh the monster movies because it is so out of the ordinary for the atmosphere that they're in (laughs) right right (laughs) it is kind of remarkable and then bud falls upon him and talking about how they need money to then bribe blue set and the dog through the radio goes like why don't i loan you some money like well actually (laughs) well but bud asked him he said the girl he met in the room he goes i i'm gonna take Dottie out to lunch Mm -hmm. lend me a couple of dollars and and lose like i don't have any money and and bud's like ah you're a house detective somebody must have slipped you a couple of dollars he goes i don't have any money and then the dog goes would you like to borrow some some money money? (laughs) (laughs) and just just how how how, yeah yeah (laughs) lou's trying to explain this situation to the dog like ask (laughs) like asking him please don't do that and lou and bud is getting so angry every time it's the shit yeah like the third the third time that the dog talks, he goes like, why are you doing this to me? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Look, I'm trying to explain to you that the dog talks. The dog talks. Look at it. And then the dog does talk and goes like, this is ridiculous. There's no such thing as a talking dog. Talking dog, yeah. <laughs> How do you like that? The moment I need him to talk, he won't say anything. And then yeah. they both do the yeah. double take and then get freaked out and run. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> and then there's a station identification off of the dog. This is... This has to be, uh, this had to be terrible to coordinate with the dog there. 
Like I like the just getting the. I know there are trained dogs, but still getting a dog to sit still and do exactly what you needed to do, and then editing, laying in that soundtrack. Like I could, I don't think I could do that on a set. I've never worked with animals on a set. I don't, I don't know if you have or not, but uh, I'm assuming they just pointed the camera at the dog, oh, yeah. had the trainer there, and just kind of waited for the dog to do certain things. And they're like, "Well, we, this works, this works, this works." Yeah, so, so. Just running off of a reel. Like it's been <laughs> like any interaction with animals. Like we'll get to the other ones later, but like anytime I see animals on screen i'm like how how hard was this day like <laughs> like right, how, yeah or how frustrating was the day like it's like because trained animals only go so far like when you get into larger animals not all of them are tameable um but uh anyway they <clears throat> they they flee this dog um and uh they um actually uh, the oh yeah sorry hold on one second I got that's on my notes here okay they uh they we cut back to the fiesta already in pro or beginning in progress uh and the uh the the musical numbers in this movie are very typical of the era uh mm-hmm. they uh, they are obviously the love interludes and whatnot and uh. I've got to be honest. These are among the more boring ones I've ever seen. Apart, oh. f- apart from, <laughs> apart from Eros Velusia's uh, dance number. Yeah. Um, like, but, but uh, Ricardo singing and Rio Rita. Rita singing. They're fine. They're both lovely. They're, they're obviously great singers. I just don't know why, but visually it was kind of flat for me. Um, I think, I think they're just uh, like uh, Catherine Grayson was an op could sing opera. So I think that was just an opportunity to kind of show off that, you know, in that moment. Yeah, and she's singing French operetta in this, uh, has uh, Spanish themed musical. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then they had to sing the title song, you know, yeah. Ricardo, uh, had to sing the title song. Yes. And... Well, you have to, because it's his version of staying the name of the movie. <laughs> Right, the right. dialogue. <laughs> Don't be ridiculous. You're in Rio, Rita. <laughs> Wink. <laughs> Wink. When I was watching the movie, it reminded me of Spencer Kane when his hair was shorter and younger. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so I'm just imagining Spencer Kane going like, "Don't be ridiculous. This is re- you're in Rio, Rita." <laughs> um, Shout out to our friend Spencer, who is also a huge Abbott and Costello fan and will come on this show eventually. But yeah, actually, this is oh, Grayson's yeah. first big movie. So it would make sense yes. that MGM is using this as a prime um, vehicle for her. Um, yeah. This is not too dissimilar, honestly, from uh, Eleanor Powell making her debut in the Broadway Melody of 1936, where she's opposite Robert Taylor. Like, that film does its damnedest to make sure Eleanor Powell is spotlighted in the best possible way. Um, right. So much so that it makes the plot film's plot impo- implausible, which is there's no way on earth that Robert Taylor would not want to get with Eleanor Powell. So you can't lull me into that disbelief. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's okay, though, because Jack and Sid Silvers are doing shit on screen. Anyway, uh, but yeah, Catherine Grayson would actually end up, she would end up going on to bigger and greater things. She's in the remake of Showboat. She's in Kiss Me, Kate. She's in Anchors Away with Frank Sinatra, which is a fun-ass film to watch. Anchors mm-hmm. Away is fucking awesome. Um, uh, but yes, uh, they we get this first musical number in the middle of this. Bud and Lou are talking about how they need more money. Um, and by the way, 
usually in these films, Bud and Lou are con artists of some kind. Right, right. And in this case in particular, Lou has clearly stolen this money. And then Bud is almost trying to convince him to give it back. (laughs) Yeah. This, like, seems to go against their thief code. (laughs) Yeah. Well, he says, we'll give it back after we buy off Lucette. Yeah. (laughs) And it it throws Lou off to where he's like, no, I've got to get it back. i got to give it back to the guy. (laughs) And that's when we come upon this scene of, uh, of, um, uh, uh, like gambling essentially like or like um uh, like a place your bets on the table like uh and yeah. the, in this the setup is as such is that there's a gentleman who will throw down ten dollars and then you throw down ten dollars you turn your back and you try to guess who or, or uh, he turns his back and he tries to guess which numbered girl you kissed which <laughs> You see them all lined up in a row, and some of them are smiling, and some of them are not bored, but they are like straining their smile. Like it's right. Yeah, <laughs> I was like trying to. Lo- I I watched this twice in the span of twenty four hours, and I looked in the background the second time, and I was noticing which ones were smiling and which ones weren't. So like, right. you could easily tell which ones thought this was misogynist and which ones thought this was a fun ass time. <laughs> like, right. <laughs> and there was one blonde in the back, directly in the back, who not only is smiling wide, she looks directly into the camera. <laughs> Oh really? Yeah, I have to rewatch this. It's this small moment, <laughs> which you—it's it, not uncommon for them to do it. I think it's mainly just because the eye, she they are having to move in order to keep their faces interested in the scene because they're—they're they're basically asked to be props. Um, right. And, um, yeah. Which I mean, you know, for the purposes of this gag, I, I'm not gonna you know kick up a fuss about it because we get this elaborate breaking down of a of a con scheme where like a carnival fair attraction where they basically trick the guy who's running the game into being the one who kisses. And then Lou gets to see it and then pats butt on the, or taps butt on the, um, or no, I'm sorry. It's bud doing it first, Bud yeah. will see who he, who's being kissed. And then he will hit Costello with the paper, the number of times to indicate the number that of the girl that he kissed. Right. And they use this to basically double their money, period. And the one that threw me and made me question Bud's intelligence was that he saw that the guy kissed number seven and then hit it six times and then had a delay for seven. <laughs> That's right. In the wordplay before, he asks Bud, or he asks Lou if he could count, and he goes, sure, one, two, three, four, five, and then there's more. And then there's some more. <laughs> and... But in this moment, he doesn't know how to count to seven. (laughs) (laughs) I'd argue that Bud is the dumb one. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But he's only he's intelligent enough to make Lou feel dumber. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then it it climaxes with the fact that the guy kisses the girl who's labeled zero. (laughs) And uh, at this point, Lou has switched places with Bud and Bud keeps going like, go ahead, tell him to pick a hard one. He goes, he picked a pip. Because <laughs> <laughs> now he doesn't know what to... And then he hits him once, and he goes, oh. And he... <laughs> what? Oh. Well, that's oh, it. <laughs> that's it. That's the right number. And that's how they won. <laughs> Game over. <laughs> the, mo- the, 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 least, the least threatening Saw game in history. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Bud. Hello, Lou. You need to guess which girl I kissed. <laughs> 
<laughs> Let the game begin. I want like uh, to play a game. <laughs> play a game. <laughs> it's called Real Rita. <laughs> <laughs> but in lieu in Saw Nine, <laughs> where, 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 uh, yeah, Jigsaw just gives up because he can't, uh, he can't I, stand I can't, it anymore. I can't keep up with these idiots. <laughs> right? Somehow they are throwing down all of my knowledge of civic engineering over the years into, <laughs> into the drain because I can't keep up with their stupidity slash intelligence. I don't, I'm, I'm just going to put myself in the bear trap now. Uh, that's uh, the reverse bear trap is going on me now. I'm done. Right. I'm done. <laughs> I know I died, but I came back to life for the purposes of this one moment. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we get another musical number after that. We get actually we get the Eros Felucia dance, which uh, I didn't know much about. Uh, Eros Felucia, um, she's Afro Brazilian, uh, a Brazilian dancer who specializes in Afro Brazilian dancing traditions, and this dance is elaborate. It's very well shot. Like it's right. it's it's uh it's better shot than the Mariel Abbott dancer sequences in a lot of Jack Benny movies where. The, much like the Mariel Abbott dancers, it's used as a uh, prop or a sequence to distract. But here, it's much more interesting because there's something in the mix. Whereas the Mariel Abbott dancers are putting on offensive costumes and <laughs> dancing around in a Busby Berkeley fashion. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but uh, anyway, uh, we uh, we get past that dancing sequence uh, and we get this seduction scene of Lucette. And by seduction, I mean, what? The, how do you set up the visual of this? Lucette is in the office, and Bud and Lou go in the office, and Bud, within earshot of Lucette. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, they're 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 just talking about her while they're like three feet away. Yeah. Now, 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 this isn't uncommon in Bud and Lou or even the Marx brothers. But I always have a question about the logic and let's get down to the bottom line. Do you think Lucette hears the fucking things they're saying or is she? I do not. Okay. I, I had a feeling that she does by the end of the scene. (laughs) By the end of the scene. I think so. Yeah. But like there, there, there is that like beginning of it where she is participating in the madness of Bud and Lou by ignoring it. And then, Bud and Lou are interrupting her movie by the end of it. Like, so it's a combination of those two factors I was talking about earlier where like, and it's, it's a wonderful scene because like it shows like, Bud, for uh, Lou is first trying to seduce Lucette and then he's trying to bribe her. (laughs) And which leads ultimately to Lou getting the money taken away from him. And Bud keeps insisting she won't take the money. She won't take the money. She took the money. She took the money. (laughs) And then that's when they decide to kick back and drink some of this. What is this drink? Willix, this drink that they got from the, uh, from the kissing game guy. It's I, I think they, they think it's cactus juice, but I think it turns out to be some sort of form of liquid dynamite or something like that. Yeah. So it's, um, the, 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 there is a, uh, precedent for this and I was going to ask how familiar or are you familiar you might be with the way this is portrayed um, so this isn't like a moonshine equivalent per se but the implication that I got from the drink is that it is strong Mexican alcohol or a tequila of some sort now there is 
there are instances in the radio comedies of this era talking about the strength of tequila. Uh, and I, uh, I would have to imagine at the time tequila, as it was distilled, had a higher alcohol content than, say, tequila you can get at the liquor store today. Because um, usually, uh, yeah, liquor today is usually like capped off at its best levels at around like forty proof. Uh, if right. you if you go higher, you're you're you know what you're asking for. It's it seems like every time I see this in a movie of that era, they are implying one thousand proof alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I well, I think in this scene, like they think they're drinking tequila or something like that or yeah. agave, um, some sort of a alcoholic agave nectar. But like they're drinking straight chemicals that are bad for you. And that's why they start seeing things. Yes. And what we get is fear and loathing in Texas. <laughs> Right, right. You know the scene in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas where Benicio del Toro is in the tub <laughs> and yeah. Johnny Depp is asking if he wants him to throw white throw the uh throw the radio into the bath bathtub when yeah. White Rabbit peaks. That's we get that and other scenes in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas in the span of about five minutes. Because he starts Lou Lou first sees an owl. Oh wait! Actually, first he takes the first drink and his hat pops off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> and right. And lands back on him like a cart. Again, they're like cartoon characters, and he drinks the dr- he, after he drinks the drink, he goes like, "I see an owl." <laughs> Isn't he cute? <laughs> Isn't he cute? What? What? There's no owl. What are you ridiculous? <laughs> there it is again. It's on the other side of your shoulder. <laughs> and then he goes into the physical shtick to the point where he s- claims to see a woman. And then go and <laughs> Bud's trying to decipher what he's talking about, and Lou's going like, "I'm ashamed to tell you what she's taking off all her clothes." Yeah, <laughs> and then and Bud then, goes, and then Bud goes, "Give me a drink of that stuff." <laughs> <laughs> so Bud is deciding to join a group hallucination. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so and anybody. Anybody who ever says, like, well, these movies of the past, they're not extreme enough. There's nothing trippy about them or edgy about them. I'm like, they literally have a halluc- a shared hallucination together. What is different between this and a mushroom trip? <laughs> like, the- right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the uh, th- now, here's where we get uh, the plot kicking in, finally. The spy plot really kicks in with this. Um I went actually I, I, before we get to that I wanted to bring this up because I didn't know if you noticed it because this pops up a bunch in the movie the discussion of tires as a hot commodity uh, and sugar now I think you and I are both aware that this is a reference to rationing at the time oh yeah yeah at a, and what the the specific line is uh you know would you trade the girl you love for a horse and he goes no but i would have to, hate to be tempted with a new tire <laughs> <laughs> and like now at the time that this film is released rationing would have had to start kicking in pretty immediately um yeah. so i and the so my guess is is that by as the time that this film comes out the film uh, the the world is already knee deep in rationing to get ready for the the impending war to get to get the things built that need to be built to go overseas because our yeah. our army and navy weren't well equipped because we were isolationist for years anyway that that's been discussed before 
Uh, but there, there's another another gag that comes up later is he has two lumps of sugar in a pouch and he says, guard this with your life. And the guy goes, right. what is? He says, there's two lumps of sugar. <laughs> like that. It, and, and it's a funny joke only if you know about rationing. If you don't, it would sound really weird. <laughs> right. So there, there's there's a joke like that that I have often wondered what the what I don't get. But um, it's in uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Yeah. And in one of the scenes, Mr. Hand um, passes out a test, like a pop quiz. Uh-huh. And all the kids in the class hold the – they pull the paper up and they smell the paper. Is that – You know what you could, know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Yeah. I do remember that. But he didn't have like any marker on it that could have been like that Mr. Scent thing or whatever, right? <laughs> no, because there, no, there was no allusion to that. But all the kids, you know – smelling the paper they, they just smell the paper and i was like that and i I remember asking my old boss who grew up around then i'm like why what like i was like why is that funny and he goes uh, i don't know <laughs> so it must have been something pretty specific do we need to get cameron crow on the phone and have him explain this shit to us? maybe yeah <laughs> maybe maybe it's in the commentary i just never bothered to to check no i, I mean fuck that shit i'm calling cameron crow directly <laughs> oh okay all right well then much easier unless they were interested in huffing pa- now now this is going to permeate my head all day going like why would you sniff paper <laughs> <laughs> why why is it that Fast Times at Ridgemont High is more of a puzzle box than the entirety of Bud and Abbott's, uh, Bud Abbott and Lou Costello's filmography. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't need this in my life anymore. <laughs> Thanks, Willix, for passing on this seed of confusion. I just, I just didn't want to be alone anymore. <laughs> now you've got a friend to be yeah. scared with together. <laughs> yeah. We'll find out after the apocalypse happens. We'll be up there, yeah. or well, we'll be down there. What I don't know where we're gonna be, but we'll 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 ask the question before we are sealed to our fate. Exactly. <laughs> but now we get the revelation that so you'll have to explain this to me to make sure I'm not crazy. This is the announcer for the radio station, correct? Who is the yes. spy? Yes. Okay. He one of the spies. Yes. One of one of the good spies. Yeah, one of the moles in the operation, if you will. Yeah. Um, and he comes in and b- bursts through the door and basically just goes, you know, like they're on to me. I've got to get this code book out. And the uh, the the implication of the plot is is that the the Nazis are going to broadcast uh, uh coded messages during the commercials uh, to get messages out to their agents to get messages out to their agents. And as the spy comes in, the Bud and Lou are, don't understand. They feel this is ridiculous. And then the lights go down, and this this announcer is just shot dead. Right. <laughs> and Bud and Lou react to it delayed, and Lou's react, delayed reaction is so grandiose that he does a backflip outside of the window. <laughs> <laughs> I marveled at that backflip. I rewound it five times like i was like this is the best backflip i've ever seen out of a window <laughs> that that might have been pat costello because he was uh he, uh lou's older brother he did all of all of lou's uh, stunt work yeah regardless of who's doing it it's a superb backflip and if the yes. illusion is to give me that lou costello is doing it they succeeded they succeeded that because it's in the same shot so it's in the right. same shot where lou is clearly seen so the only way that they would have – I didn't see a jump in the edit, but there would have had to be a moment where they spliced the film as such that uh, Pat Costello would then be switched out and do the flip. 
So, and also I was curious of like, was there, was there uh physical ability so much that if needed, Lou could do a backflip because it wouldn't surprise me if he could like, right. right. Now, now I'm sure there's a wire to help them out because there's gotta be something under, uh, uh, over, over them. But like, it's, it's just, it was like really well executed, like insane batshit slapstick, like a small moment of it that I fucking loved. Um, and then, you know, Rita, has come to the conclusion through the musical numbers that Ricardo does indeed love her. And it then moves into a scene where Ricardo and Lucette are alone together. And Lucette reveals that she's a mole. This one felt less plausible than the announcer <laughs> because the, the announcer had a scene where he was eager to know what was in the package. That's so, right. yeah. so, so that makes sense. Lucette suddenly being a spy in this nest of spies is like, Oh, she's, this is convenience for the plot to give when, Lou a love interest. <laughs> they did. They did show her snooping around the manager's office in the scene where Bud and Lou are trying to buy her oh, off. Yeah, that's true. They, Cause that, they did show that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So then, yeah. So then that's the setup then. Okay. So then I didn't read that correctly. Okay. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. <laughs> Cause she's looking for the code book as is everybody else, but she's trying to get the code book. So like, yeah. Anyway, she's a spy and she distracts, uh, she, the, she sees that uh, the Nazi spies are looking in on her, so she grabs Ricardo and kisses him, and Ricardo's only too uh, happy to uh, ra- ra- to uh, accept that. And yeah. uh, they, um, uh, uh, Rita, Rita sees it, and Rita is just, you know, crestfallen, going like, oh, this, this man who I thought loved me, even though I initially thought he loved other women before me, now loves other women before me. Like, <laughs> Rita, you're better than this. You own a hotel. You can, <laughs> you can, you can run your own business. You don't need a man. <laughs> yeah. Um. And uh. And, but uh. They end up getting the code book. R- Ricardo ends up acquiring the notebook or the the code book to hide and. Or because he gets it from Bud and Lou, they find it, and Bud Bud says something that really threw me, like I, not in a bad way, but just like he says, "Yeah, we looked inside there. There's a bunch of screwy names like Battleship and Dynamite." <laughs> <laughs> Again, I think that Bud is the stupidest one in the group in the pair. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Who looks at the word Battleship and thinks, "Well, that's a strange name for a human being." <laughs> Like, unless he thought they were G.I. Joes. Beyond that, I don't. <laughs> right, right. That was fun. And, uh, but anyway, they, they agree to hide the code book. And this is when Bud decides to abandon Lou to, uh, to the Nazi, to, to Nazi death to go on a date. <laughs> and, <laughs> and the, the way they set this up, first of all, they set up that Lucette's going to go to Lou Lou's apartment to find the book because they suspect that it's there. And Lou is listening to the radio and the Ranger song is playing on the radio. And when I first saw the film last night, I thought, well, this is just a random callback. I love that the Ranger song becomes a plot point. (laughs) Oh yeah. Yeah. Like it's, it's, I like the way it's set up. Like it's not so obvious at first. 
Like so, the first time he's hearing it over the radio, and Bud goes like, "What kind of idiot would request that song over the radio?" And they go, "Ranger like, song is at the request of Mr. Wishy Dunn." Yeah, <laughs> nobody but you. Oh, <laughs> nobody would be that stupid except for you. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And again, Bud leaves Lou to his demise <laughs> to be left alone, uh, and he turns off the lights and goes, "Turn on the lights! <laughs> Don't you do that!" <laughs> And he, uh, he he wants to leave him alone, and he uh, goes like, "What happens if a beautiful girl? If I'll be dead? Yeah, if you, if I'm dead, have twenty five beautiful girls walk around me. Why? If I'm if I don't get up, you'll know I'm dead." <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, and then Lou, Lou, at this point, Lou has now fallen asleep. Lucette comes in to get the codes, and Lou is suddenly shocked by the fact that there's a woman in his in his in his bedroom, and what's more, that a woman is interested in him. <laughs> That's right. She she sort of seduces him. Yes, but yeah. it, by seduce Willix, you mean imply passion, fake passion, while Lou freaks the fuck out like he's going through an anxiety attack. Right. <laughs> it's 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 kind of incredible. Like, and the amount of self doubt and self lack of self worth that Lou puts into this moment is wonderful. Um, <laughs> and then she goes into the room after kissing him and melting him completely to the point where he's rolling around the floor in ecstasy <laughs> that uh, she goes in to get the code. She opens their wallets and sees that there's a mouse trap in there. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I love, I think that needs to come back. <laughs> We need mouse traps and wallets. This is the only way we'll protect our money in the uh, impending apocalyptic war zone. You're <laughs> 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 like, no, no, no. They can't get my. They can't get my precious metals. I keep them in a wallet with a mouse trap. <laughs> 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 and uh, she uh, she couldn't find the codes. She leaves. She says, um, "Now uh, close your eyes, and I'll give you something to make you wise." And <laughs> And Lou goes, that's what Santa Claus said to me one year. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he rolls around on the floor. Oh, Lucette. Oh. <laughs> and then as Lucette leaves, the dog comes in and is next to him. And he thinks, still thinks Lucette is there. So he goes, Lucette, why are you wearing a coat in this weather? It's so warm. Ooh, yeah. Lucette. <laughs> <laughs> and Ricardo comes in on this, gets Lou off the ground, Lou sees that the dog walks away and goes, Lucette, come back, Lucette. And then he does the double take and it's great. He goes like, that was a, hey, he now realizes it was a dog. And Ricardo has this line about, uh, no, we, no, no one cares about your love life. And I'm like, no, 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 Ricardo. And with all due respect, your love life is less interesting right now than Lou Costello's love life because it seems like there's none and yet there's all of it in there. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. Right. Uh, and, uh, he, uh, basically tries to get a ride out, uh, to get away. And he goes to a cab. There's people necking in the cab and, uh, he, he runs to the next cabin, but is in the one cabin just says, no, <laughs> 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 and then he turns back. And at that point, he goes to the Nazis, not realizing that they're Nazis. And the, and Maurice goes, well, Jake and, he, uh, Jake and his, this other guy will take you for a ride. And he goes like, oh, boy, that's swell. <laughs> and he is getting carted off. And uh, 
he goes, hey, Doc, Doc, these guys are going to take me for a ride. And Bud, in the background, it's kind of slight, does the gun motion. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. then and through the delayed reaction, Bud, uh, Lou realizes, like, hey, boys, are you taking me for this kind of ride? This kind of ride. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then they take him for a ride and dump him in this laundry chute at the hotel. Uh, and this is where we get the laundry laundromat sequence. That's um, right. This is insane. This... I thought the coffee cup in the horn blows at midnight was insane. This is even more insane. <laughs> the setup is this. Uh, Willix, can you describe this to people? Like what this is? Cause this is not a lot. Uh, I, I don't know if this actually would have existed. <laughs> I don't know either. Yeah. It seems like it was something they built. So it was, it's just a giant laundry room for the hotel. And uh, Lou jumps into a, a laundry basket, the, like kind of the one, the, the cloth one on wheels. Yeah, and it's he's dumped with a bunch of dirty sheets, and it goes down a chute into this huge glass encased, um, like cube washing machine. Yeah. yeah, it's like a it's like a big cube, but it has glass all around, and there's a door so people can go in, and then it's it's operated by these uh, buttons on the floor that somebody steps on, and uh, so the guy. The guy who's running the laundry room turns it on and like shuts it down for the night. You know, he's gonna let the the clothes wash, and it's dumping well, like soap and water into the into this cube. And it seems specifically timed to only happen when Lou reaches up. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, and that's when <laughs> and that's when Bud comes in, and we Bud get- comes in. And he he he's stepping on the floor controls and doesn't realize it, and he's making the laundry go through each cycle. Yeah, and they say they this is a reference that he mentions that I don't know what this is still to this day, but I've heard it in radio shows for years, and I should just look into it. But they talk about like this is not a good time to take a bath, and he goes like I think it is, and Lou goes this isn't Saturday night, get out of there. I have yeah. no idea what that refers to. I because unless it's water rationing, which it, I don't. it might be water rationing, or that that was just a thing too. If you were poor, yeah, you couldn't afford to take a, a bath all the time, so you just waited and you did it once a week. I guess that yeah, then that would make the most sense then, because yeah, because he makes that gag, and I'm like, I've heard this so many fucking times. What does this mean? That makes the most sense. Uh, and then he gets spun around, dunked up and down. And it takes forever to Lou for for Bud to realize that there's an emergency stop on the floor. <laughs> the, That's right. The, yeah. The range at which Bud is unable to notice things with his eyes is interesting because like the blocking is so intricate for them him to clearly look at anything but what he needs to look at. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And he finally sees the emergency stop, and it shoots Lou down a pile of boxes. And I love this reveal. Bud goes over and starts knocking down this row of boxes that leads to Lou having gone headfirst through the wall. <laughs> and yeah. through the wall is a steam iron that is ironing his head. <laughs> it's clamped on Lou's face. Yeah. yeah. And I was just, and, I, and again, it brought me to this point of like, how many concussions does Lou Costello have over the years as a character? <laughs> right. I, if, if there's any argument for why he gets dumber with each movie, the answer is look at all the head trauma. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, and again, never one to prescribe logic to these moments, but I, I, you can't help but look at it and go like, God, like, 
And also to wonder, because obviously Pat Costello would do his stunts, but Lou did more than enough on, on his own merit to be like, how much of a beating did Lou Costello himself take on the physical form? Because that, you know, you you would you would hear about other uh, performers who had a certain physical skill where they would get worn out over time, like James Cagney doing the dance in The Seven Little Foys with Bob Hope on the table. That, like, hurt his fucking feet to the point of pain, and he was working through uh-huh. it. So I had to yeah. imagine Lou Costello, like, had more than enough fair share of bruises. Uh, I'm sure he did, yeah. Yeah, and, like, and Lou Costello, is a, as a person, ran into a streak of bad luck throughout his life. Um, in the same year, he went to the hospital for a huge medical malady that would plague him most of his life, and then as he got out of the hospital and was getting ready to go back on the radio, his his young son died drowning in their pool. That's right. Yeah. And so he had he had been known in the business as Hard Luck Lou. Um, and by the time he got back, uh, I, I mean, a lot of people have noted that he was a very changed person after those uh, events. Um, mm-hmm. And at this point in 1942, Lou is on the receiving end of like renegotiating his deal with Abbott to stay in partnership. What? Yeah. Cause wasn't that, wasn't the deal like in burlesque, wasn't the straight man made 60 and the comedian made 40. Yes. Um, and then when, when they got to Hollywood, their deal was 50, 50. And then Lou said, I'm going to quit unless I get 60. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. uh, the, uh, and now this is at a point before Costello has the rheumatic fever and then his infant son, Lou Jr. dies. Um, so this is a year before. So he's actually working his way up the ladder. And the reason why in burlesque and in vaudeville, the straight man got more Willicks was because a good straight man was hard to find. It's easy, That's right. it's easy to find somebody to deliver the funny lines in a silly voice, theoretically, but it's harder to find a good straight man who can do the job of setting up the gag. So right. realistically, in as far as burlesque is concerned, yeah, Bud is actually the more valuable commodity. When you get to film, well, the 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 scales are tipped differently because the medium is different. Um right. As long as they're under contract to a studio, uh, they're going to, and if they're being paid as a team, you know, theoretically they've got a whole stable of straight men they could replace Bud Abbott with. But, and so, which gets to the discussion of like, okay, what was this, the deal was. And so they uh, had just co signed a new agreement to uh, keep their partnership intact on January 9th, 1942, where, yes, Costello now earns 60% of the salary with Abbott taking 40. Um, and given Abbott's track record with losing money, it would uh, this deal end up kind of screwing him down the line because he does end up kind of dying poverty-stricken uh, in the, in the, uh, in near the end of his life. Uh, I thought they had a corrupt business manager who ended up stealing like a lot of their money. Is that true? Hmm. Or is that searching? Searching. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know if I've ever heard of that. Okay. But it, but it, it wouldn't surprise me if they did. Um, yeah, actually I, now that I think of it, I, I'm pretty sure that. So like, here's the, here's one of the things that, 
did affect their finances down the line. Like, so Universal ends up dropping them in 1955. In the early 50s, the IRS had charged them both for back taxes and forced them to sell their homes and many of their assets, including the rights to their films. So, because oh, okay. they had a they had an agreement to uh, 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 own uh, some of the films, and uh, there, there there's a whole slew of just different financial calamities that ultimately lead to. Uh, their their different respective declines, um, but their partnership ends up breaking up in nineteen fifty six or nineteen fifty seven. Sorry, yeah. After uh, uh, Dance with Me, Henry, and uh, I think that had Lou lived, they would have reteamed up. Yeah, um, I think they were always. There's actually a great special episode of Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast where they talk with. Leonard Malton and uh, two Abbott and Costello experts who are actually spearheading the restoration of films like Jack and the Beanstalk and Africa Screams, um, where they talk about Bud and Lou's lives. And they they surmised something pretty astute, which is that, like, I think if the right material and the right project could come along, they would have found a way to get back together because they did they did love each other. They did care for each other. Right. Um, But uh, it did seem that there was a point where Lou wanted to separate out. Um, but right now they are together in the film and, uh, Jake, the Nazi captures them (laughs) and (laughs) he ties them both up. He shuts Bud up, which I'm kind of happy that he did. (laughs) (laughs) Now at last Lou won't get gaslit by Bud anymore. (laughs) Right. And Jake goes into this spiel about a bomb, a ticking time bomb that's set to go off at 1125. So now we're in a ticking time clock movie from here on out. And this is the moment where Lou decides, Wishy decides, look, if you're going to kill somebody, why don't you just kill me and let Doc go? Yeah. (laughs) And I was just like, wow, after all the abuse you've just suffered, you're willing. It's like the, the beauty of that character is that he is willing to like fall on a, fall on a grenade for doc. Like, right. Like the, the love is so real. And like, and when Jake refuses this plan, a telling line as to their current relationship status was sorry, doc, I guess we're gonna have to be, you're stuck with being partners with me, <laughs> <laughs> which I thought at first might be an allusion to the re-signing of their deal, but uh, it might also just be a really nice gag. Because that that happened um, while they were filming this movie, they re-signed their deal and they got their um, they got their names on the in front of the Grauman's Chinese Theater, put in their handprints and stuff. Yeah, their stuff. handprints yeah. and footprints. Yes, and I but and, and actually, the, Bud and Lou fall into the same logic point as Bob Hope. I feel, and also Jack has this too. Like a lot of comedians of the era. When they're in a movie, occasionally they will reference something in the for by that that thus breaks the fourth wall or trends into meta. Bob does this all the time. Uh, Bob and Bing do this all the time in the road movies. They specifically reference Paramount or the fact that they can't say something because of the censors. Like they actively break that fourth wall, like it doesn't matter to the structure of a building. And oh, okay. uh, Jack did this uh, as early on as artists and models when he and he and uh, another one of his co- co-female leads are walking past a radio and the Jack Benny program is playing on the radio. 
and Jack goes, "Oh, isn't that nice?" And the uh, the person with him goes, "Like, ah, he's not my, he's not to my liking." <laughs> <laughs> and it's just, a, and then you get that kind of like delayed look from Jack, going, "Like, oh." <laughs> uh, and in here, uh, that this would make sense if they're going to reference anything directly. This is the way they do it, and then yeah. they're about to uh, uh, get, get the kibosh put on them when suddenly uh a speech of hitler's is heard over the uh, from, from a distance and jake immediately goes into a salute cuz again nazis and people of white nationalist uh persuasion are mindless zombies who obey their who obey the every command of their leader and it's specifically right. true here and what is revealed is that hitler's voice is coming out of the uh, coming out of the mouth of a donkey um, so we get a we get a Nazis are a jackass joke. <laughs> yeah, and, and 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 Lou says I've heard your voice, but I've never before seen your face. Yep, and it's the best. Yeah. It's my second favorite line in the movie, apart from the one I did earlier. Uh, right. That is such a fucking wonderful gag, and it's coming right off of the entry into war. They're now finally allowed to fully make fun of Hitler on the nose. That very little other consideration is made, and like it's just like no, 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 man, fuck that mustache, fuck. We're gonna kick some Nazi ass, um, and I and they that's how they escape is thanks to the behest of this donkey. <laughs> right, right, and um, and then we 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 press along into this elaborate finale. First off, Ricardo and Rita reconcile after the Nazis hold them at gunpoint. <laughs> Right. <laughs> and and that's that's the moment where Rita decides, Oh, you've loved me this whole time and I'm like <laughs> Okay guys, let's wrap this up. Like get Bud and Lou back on screen. <laughs> and they uh you know, they, they force Ricardo and Rita at gunpoint back to the station where uh the the Maurice says, I don't need the code book, I'm gonna you know, I'll give the, I'll do the commercials myself, and I, I, I think, I don't think I have to tell you what happens if you try to stop me. <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, they get to the 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 hotel again where they're doing the broadcast, and they're about to do the the first speech, and then Ricardo punches out Maurice and goes, "Ladies and gentlemen," he tries to tell the crowd what's going on, um, and it cuts back to Bud and Lou are stringing up a team of donkeys our burrows and uh we don't know exactly what they're going to do yet but these are all burrows that have the radios in their stomachs and we hear again we we are playing at the request uh we're playing the ranger song upon request by rishi wishy dunn and uh wishy tries to take a bow and doc goes this is no time to take a bow <laughs> and so then they they're amidst the chaos inside uh, Ricardo is again held at gunpoint, but then all of a sudden, in the distance, you hear the Ranger song. The Nazis get freaked out. Oh shit, the Rangers! Let's get the fuck out of here. And it's also established at this point that the bomb has been placed in a has been placed in a on, on one of the persons, I believe, or is it the car? They Lou placed um, it in the car. Lou put it in Jake's back pocket. Yeah, Lou put it in Jake's back pocket. That's yes, yeah, that's actually right. So. Uh, they escape and uh, only, leaving only Jake inside there, who's like been knocked out. And uh, the burrows come through, playing the Ranger song from their stomachs. Uh, Lou gets on a table and they goes like, "But how did you know it would work?" And uh, and he goes like, "The and they we hear the Ranger song was requested by Mister Wishy Dunn, and that's when he takes his bow." 
Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and then that leads to Jake trying to get at him. And there's this great stunt of a near miss where the stuntman playing uh, Ricardo is leaping at the stuntman playing Jake and just barely misses him Matrix style. <laughs> Like yeah, and doesn't he jump over a jump over one of the mules? Yes, he does. At the same time, he yeah. jumps over the mule while trying to get at him and missing him. Like it's like I don't know how many takes that takes. Like that's like right. such a close miss to establish that he doesn't get him right away. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Lou uh, is chased out by Jake. Uh, he eventually gets him not get, he eventually evades him and Jake runs after to join up with his Nazi cronies and Lou yells out to them don't forget Jake yeah wait for Jake yeah <laughs> wait for Jake and uh oh and the, during the chase the reason we know the bomb is going to come into play is because he asks a gentleman as he's running what time it is. He goes, 11.25, and he goes, your watch is too fast. <laughs> <laughs> and so Jake and the Nazis get away, and Lou goes, no, they aren't. And then you just hear an explosion. <laughs> yeah, and then and then Lou says goodnight. Yeah, he just says, like, uh, I, I, did he say, like, it's 11.25? Good night, folks. <laughs> Good night, folks. And that's yeah. when the movie mm-hmm. ends. <laughs> the end of M- an MGM production. Uh, yep. th- this has been Rio Rita. Um, the movie, I was not able to find many, uh, reviews of it, but, uh, the film itself did earn a pretty tidy profit for them, uh, of a million and $340,000. So, uh, it didn't do terribly for them. Um, I'd have to compare this to the numbers for other Bud and Lou films, but obviously, they go back to Universal and make more pictures before MGM brings them back for Lost in a Harem and then eventually Abbott and Costello in Hollywood. Uh, yeah. Uh, the film was shot uh, uh, on location at Palm Springs for some of the <clears> film. <throat> so, like, there is actual on-location shots, more than likely for the stuff with the ranger and anything outside there, like the, uh, the desert environment. Um, right. And uh, the... Uh, that while I'm while I'm hard pressed to find many reviews of the era, uh, this is interestingly like a lower rated uh, film in regards of modern critics. They actually uh, like r- the aggregate on Rotten Tomatoes gives it a forty percent. Now, obviously, it's an aggregate uh, coming out of audience scores and not any contemporary reviewers throwing into it. So it seems like fans of Abbott and Costello are not fans of this movie. I got to tell you, I really liked the movie a lot. Like, it's like a definite recommend for me. Um, Yeah. And I was going to ask, like, now, knowing that you grew up with this and the other two MGM ones first, how does this hold up for you now in a world where you've seen more of the Universal ones? I still like these the best. (laughs) (laughs) Love them. Um, Yeah, I, I do need to see. I do need to just watch more of those i recently got one of the the box sets of the universal movies on dvd so i just need to i just need to go through them you know i just need to watch them so yeah um 
And I've been trying to find the show on DVD. I don't know if it's available on DVD or not. Uh, <clears throat> scattered places have it available. Um, okay. The of the show and like and I, uh, as far as the availability of Rio Rita, it is available on Warner Archive along with Abbott and Costello Meet Captain Kid, which was a movie they did for Warner Brothers. Um, yeah. And as far as the legacy of this, again, during filming of this, as Matt Willick said, they had their hand and footprints set in concrete at Grauman's Chinese Theater. Um, and then when they went back to Universal, they made Pardon My Sarong, which was a parody of the South Sea Island movies that Dorothy L'Amour was famous for being in and wearing a sarong. And in the same year, they do my favorite film they done, which is Who Done It, which is a uh, mystery film set in a radio studio. Um, it's a film that I didn't see until after I did my own projects with old time radio on my own films. So like, it's a movie that I've grown to love because I found it after the fact. Um, and in 1942 movie theater, uh, movie theater owners and the exhibitors all voted them as the top box office stars in the country. Their earnings for the fiscal year were $789,000 and they did in this process. They did a 35-day tour to sell war bonds, and the credit, the Treasury Department of the United States credited them with 85 million dollars in bond sales. So they are responsible for 85 million dollars worth of bond sales. Which, yeah, the the, uh, the only other record that I have like real traction on is Carol Lombard making the most <clears throat> money for a war bond rally in a single event of like $3 million before her death. So like Abbott and Costello didn't just star in buck privates. They backed it up with support for the war as well. Um, Absolutely. And, um, a year later, um, <clears throat> Costello fell in, uh, fell, uh, fell under rheumatic fever, uh, in, in March of 1943. And he was bedridden for six months in November, the same day that he returned to radio his infant son, Lou Jr., died uh, an accidental drowning in the family swimming pool. Um, and uh, the uh, uh, there's actually is a quote from Maxine Andrews, who was one of the Andrews sisters, said, he didn't seem as fun-loving and as warm. He seemed to anger easily. There was a difference in his attitude. So Lou has changed at this point. So as they keep going through their... Uh, th their partnership, there's a rift that develops. Um, uh, uh, and it comes in a weird personal thing where Abbott hired a domestic servant that had been fired by Lou, and so he refused to speak to him. Uh, and so their partnership kind of wavers on and off up until their end. Uh, yeah. And in 1948, they make the first of their many Meet the Monster movies. Uh, which are a huge success, but it's also those end up being the beginning of the end for Abbott and Costello's true dominance. Um, their their last film uh, uh, would be Dance with Me, Henry, which is an independent film for United Artists, uh, and they would split the uh, the year a year later. Uh, Lou um, uh, Lou would die first. Um, Lou died in 1959, uh, and Abbott joined him, uh, in 1974. Uh, 1974 is actually a year where we lost a lot of big legends. And so 
So having wrapped up our discussion on this, Willix, I was going to ask, like, why do you think <clears throat> we still talk about Bud and Lou as opposed to other comedians of the era? I don't know. You know, I, I know why we talk about them. I it seemed like when I was growing up, I would bring up Abbott Costello and people would either they would either do. I don't know them or I would rather watch the Three Stooges. Right. It seems like to me, I heard that all the time. And um, full disclosure (laughs) without, you know, dragging, you know, vanity into it. You are you are much older than I am. Um, Oh, okay. uh, And so you would you're in a better age range where people would still remember Abbott and Costello. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, yeah, I I don't know, man. That's that's a good question to ask, probably because it's there's not a real definitive answer. Um, I mean, for me, it's just I've I've always been, you know, you you've called them cartoons in real life, and that might be why they're still endearing to them, or endearing to me, is because that's that's all I really do, man. Is is I, like I love cartoons and. Mm-hmm that's an aspect why I like horror movies so much too, is because the violence is kind of cartoonish. You know what I mean? Especially with like eighties fair. Yeah. And it's, and, des- uh, and it's designed to provide a healthy release. Right. Yeah. So I, I think that's for me that like, that might be one thing that makes, just makes them enduring and, you know, and it's also nostalgia for me. You know what I mean? Yeah, um, absolutely. So yeah, it's, that's yeah. I, I would like to know. I would. I. I honestly haven't met like. Like I just you. You said uh, Spencer Kane was a uh, 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 Avon Costello fan. I. I. I don't think I knew that until. Um, so you said that today. <laughs> yeah. No. Well, um, I found out about it after we did Twombly, um, because oh, okay. uh, after the fact, talking with him a bunch. I learned about his love of Abbott and Costello. And then that was just one of those things that kept our friendship afloat, especially during rough times in my life. Um, and, you know, and I, I think that it actually is poignant to me that it does appeal to somebody like Spencer who him, he himself, uh, you know, openly and unabashedly is a goofy, is a goofy fella. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I think that, that speaks to the longevity of Abbott and Costello. Um, I do, I do look at it from that s- spectrum of like, man, like if it, if it's still working for somebody like Spencer, it's definitely got a shelf life that no other comic can touch. Um, I think a big reason of it has to do with the fact that it is, ex- their films are extremely accessible in a way that comedies by other, uh, comedians are not. Um, I think it's right. broad enough to work for any age range. The wordplay works for adults. The physical humor works for kids. I think also like a big part of it, as set up at the top, when you're in a series of movies that keep the universal monsters afloat in a sincere way, uh, I think that that is a good benefit to have in your back pocket in terms of longevity down the line because – more than likely, if you're seeing them for the first time, you're seeing them through those movies. Um, or right. you would be surprised, I would say, uh, how many people I've come across, Willix, who they know Abbott and Costello not even through their movies because they heard of Who's On First. I think. Oh, Who's, that's right. I, yeah. think, I think Who's On First is the big overarching legacy. If you uh, when, I, when I was a kid, 
in high school in like my freshman year of high school, my dad took me and my sister to New York and there were t-shirts in the NBC store for who's on first. There were Abbott <laughs> and Costello t-shirts in there. This is yeah. way past their prime. I think I think they're even inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame because of who's on first. Yep, because that bit had become so cemented by them in the pop culture lexicon that yeah. it's it's a, it's a part of baseball history now. It has to be. Um and I think even if you don't like Abner Costello, you've heard this bit once before and it has seeped in your mind. Um I think yeah. part of it also is because other people have adopted it or referenced it. This is an instance where, unlike Jack, where Deadpool 2 referencing Jack Benny is so fucking out of left field that you would not you would not have guessed that. If anything, it would have made more sense for Deadpool to reference Abbott and Costello first before right. he would have ever reference Jack because other comedians would reference it constantly. And I do think, the, as, as we talked about the Jerry Seinfeld thing before, that adds a definite cement because Seinfeld you know, uh, unquestionably is one of the greatest sitcoms of the last 50 years um, yeah. because of its accessibility. And a lot of it has to do with the writing style that Larry David and John, Jerry Seinfeld brought to the show was very in line with a Abbott and Costello form of delivery. Um, I don't think that they necessarily do the same on the physical realm, but they're not really needing to. Um, right. And uh, but as far as uh, films that you can draw with Rio Rita today, you know, I think that the only way you can do it is with comedy teams. And right now, comedy teams are not really a thing. I think we have equivalents. So like uh, Jonah Hill and Channing Tatum are a good example of how a comedy duo on screen works, both with verbal humor and physical humor. Because mm -hmm. if you watch the 21 Jump Street movies, that's a pairing that works. But I think that the difference is, is that putting those pairings in different movies doesn't work the same way it used to. So, like, it's either right. part of a franchise or it's not part of a franchise. I think the last people to do it successfully uh, were probably Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor. And they're oh, mm -hmm. and they're coming at it from a very different angle, but it's still cemented in that same lineage. And you know, Hope and Crosby had the same kind of back and forth. And like, and actually, you know, there's also an element of um, uh, Spies Like Us, but Spies Like Us is trying to be more like Bob and Bing and not right. Bud and Lou. Um, I, I I would also argue um, Tommy Boy is as you know, those those two oh. guys worked pretty well together. Yeah, Tommy Boy and Black Sheep. Like mm -hmm. which are both I, I, I don't I still don't understand why Black Sheep gets kicked around a bunch. It's not a bad movie. Um but uh it's just it's not Tommy Boy. That's the problem. Uh, <laughs> right. but uh the but yeah, that's a pairing that still works. Um You're you're uh you're selling yourself on your own personality. You're not having to do a partner act or a two person act anymore, um, right? Uh, and so I think that the the legacy of Abbott and Costello is that it's one of the few things from the vaudeville burlesque era that has transcended into the new millennium. 
Um, right. I don't think Burns and Allen have really. Uh, I think Olsen and Johnson have for different reasons because I a sneak preview for the next time Matt is on the show. We're also going to be joined by Brian Richards to talk about hell's a poppin, which is a Olsen and Johnson movie. But the reason we talk about it today is not really because of Olsen and Johnson. We talk about it because the first 10 minutes are fucking ridiculous and awesome. Right. Um, <laughs> and insane. And, um, but like, but even like, and Wheeler and Woolsey who originated Rio Rita, they have not been a part of the conversation within the last 10 years <laughs> at all. Right. Like right. unless you were a vaudeville fan, like a fan of <laughs> vaudeville performers. So I think yeah. that there, as far as drawing direct, direct lineage, I think that the legacy that it leaves behind ultimately stems from the fact that they've created a form of verbal humor that has transcended into other mediums. Uh, and as far as film is concerned, they are considered in the same ranks as a Casablanca or a Ben-Hur. Like, these are eternal classics for people. Um, right. What's, what's amazing is, is that they are among that elite comedy group that have created a form of cinema that is still viable, regardless of what form it takes. Um, which, you know... I think it just the difference is, is that the structure of the story itself will change. Um, and also for the fact is that it's still fucking funny. Like the, absolutely the amount of laughter billowing out of my fucking mouth last <laughs> night from this movie was uh, insatiable because I've seen a lot of Bob Hope movies and Jack Benny movies so many times that I don't always get the same amount of laughter. The, f yeah. the the fact that I haven't seen every Abbott and Costello movie is kind of a blessing because it means I have more to look forward to. Right. So I think that yeah the the legacy about it is ultimately that it still works for people like, and it, there's a part of me that even though this show is dedicated to finding out that answer, this is an instance where I'm like I don't really care about the reason. <laughs> like, right. Right. Just just yeah. accept that it's there. <laughs> just be fucking happy that. And I I think it's it's in a in a it's in a spot nowadays where like, it's just gonna, people are going to pass it on to their kids, you know what I mean? Or something, you know, something like that. Yeah. And, that, and that's just how it's going to, it's going to exist. It's funny. Like, you know, I, I believe you're an uncle, I believe. Right. Like at this point. Yeah. Yeah. I'm an uncle too. Uh, if I'm going to pick anything to show my nephew first from the era, as mu as much as my temptation would be to immediately foist Jack Benny upon him, uh, <laughs> Uh, or even Bergen and McCarthy, I think my go-to would be like, no, I mean, I didn't grow up with them in the same way, but Abbott and Costello would be the natural way to do this. Um, yeah. Now here, before we go, uh, uh, Willex, let's talk, let, let's, let's proclaim our favorite routines in Bud and Lou's history. Oh, okay. Yeah. Thank hard. Um, say, <laughs> um, um do you, you you can go first i like oh, yeah. my i think i think i i think <laughs> who's my on favorite, first <laughs> who's on first no no that's not my answer i was just asking you. That's my the... my i mean honestly one of my favorite routines was the routine with the talking dog it's it's so i mean i was i hadn't seen the movie for for a few years i knew it was coming up but i mean i was i was just um i was worried I was going to wake up my roommates. I was laughing so hard. <laughs> so it's uh, so good. Yeah. That's a good one. Uh, I have two, one is verbal and one is physical verbal. 
uh, is Lower and Upper Birth, uh, which is a gag that they've done in their films as well. But it's I, I first heard it on radio where the idea is that uh, Lou doesn't understand that an upper birth is lower price than a lower birth, which is costs more. And the two get into a lower is higher than an upper and an upper is higher than a lower. And <laughs> it still gets me every fucking time. Yeah. Um, and then physicality wise, um, it's a gag that occurs in hold that ghost. And then Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, which is the candle bit. Uh, the oh candle, yeah. The, yeah. The candle bit where uh, the candle keeps sliding. And I think part of the reason why I love it is because uh I appreciated it when I first saw it, but then I watched a documentary that kind of extrapolated how Hold That Ghost ended up being a testing ground for Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein and them showing the intricacies of that moment. I'm like, this is a, this is timing that is superb. Like comedy timing takes different forms, like it, whether it's delivery or physicality. And I think this is a great example of just perfect timing on both Lou's part and the magic of film. Uh, yeah. the, the candle bit is fucking magical. Um, so yeah, I would say that those are my, 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 my preferred ones overall. Um, um I, I love the loafing, um, sketch. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so you go, you got a job in a bakery. Yeah. Doing what loafing. And he thinks, you know, he's like loafing around, like being a loaf, you know, like, like being lazy. Um, another one is, this is another one from the show, but it's when, um, the kid is, his room is on fire (laughs) and he's going to get a cup of water at a time. Yep. (laughs) And he goes, I'm not thirsty. My room is on fire. Um, It's stinky, right? It's stinky. uh, Yeah, stinky. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And then um, another one I like is the Susquehanna Hat Company. (laughs) Um, That's a good one. Um, There's a... There's uh there's ones from radio. I my mine tend to be radio related. Um, but actually, in Who Done It. Uh, there's scenes in the ice cream store, uh, in the ice cream parlor, uh, where they're trying to make a sundae. It is a that that's a fun bit, and then uh, uh, radio wise, uh, there's one about um, uh, uh, selling sheet music, uh, and then uh, it actually goes into a song that I want to play at the end of the episode after when it's edited, but it's uh, uh, laugh, laugh, laugh. Uh, and that's going to wrap it up for this discussion on Rio Rita, but this isn't the last time we'll talk about Bud and Lou. I think we need to get down to the intricate, nerdy details of Abbott and Costello and their existence on the planet earth <laughs> as characters, yeah. not as, not as actors. Cause we kind of, we'll delve more into their career. I feel, um, too, but, uh, cause like actually with Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, it finds them at an interesting point in their career as well as the, involvement of people like Bella Lugosi and Lon Chaney Jr. and uh, Vincent Price's cameo in that movie too. Um, so, but Matt, promote anything you would like to promote. The world is your oyster. <laughs> oh, um, I don't really have anything to promote. Uh, I have a, Brian and I made these stupid little shorts on YouTube called uh, Uncle Grimley's Horror Night. Look that up. They're not stupid. They're amazing. Don't, uh, don't, yeah. don't be a Lou. Don't be a me and a Lou. <laughs> 
And then uh, I recently started a new Instagram account uh, just documenting my attempt to build a home theater called the Colorado Bat Cave. But you can follow it and I will uh, I will post uh, I, I will post a name in there so that people can find it. Uh, and and that that account's going to be real boring, folks. It's just going to be like, here's what movie I watched this weekend. That's okay. I used to do, <laughs> yeah. I used to do that too, and I and I didn't yeah. give a shit who the hell was looking. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Zach watched Duck Soup for the what? How many times? How many times? <laughs> yeah, how many times? too many to count. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Actually, actually, when we talk about the Marx Brothers, eventually, like y- you will probably be astounded at the number of times I can recount dialogue from that movie because it's so fucking wide. <laughs> <laughs> All right, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, Marx Brothers are my go are my go to when I'm super sad these days. <laughs> I'm just well, like, that's good. you know yeah. what I'm gonna do? Uh, yeah, it's like you know what I'm gonna do animal crackers for the 17th time this year there you go <laughs> it's an hour and it's 20, all good it's about an hour and 20 ish minutes and it just moves like moves moves super fast that's uh, right but yeah and then on the next time we have you on i believe we will uh not only have you back uh but we will have a new guest uh attached to it because we've got we can't talk about the movie hell's a poppin with just one person we need to talk about it with two people um, right. <laughs> so that will be the next time you will appear will be Hell's a Poppin'. And also we will be getting you on for some Universal Monster Talk because, of course, that will happen. Um, Hell yeah. So you need to start thinking about the one that you want to do. Um, oh, and, and, and actually, I will announce that my goal is to actually try if we can. I can't, can't guarantee we'll do it chronologically, but I want to attempt to go through each and every one of those movies at some point because that's um, – there's yeah, a, there's a legacy to them that after you've talked about the big ones like the first entries or even Bride of Frankenstein, as you go along in the series, it becomes less about talking about production and more about talking about how the series goes on. <laughs> the, oh, yeah. The mummy ones especially are the ones that I feel fall off a deep curve by the third entry. <laughs> but yeah, that's going to wrap it up for this episode of the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Uh, you can find out more about us on the tag at the end of the show. Uh, we've got a couple of things coming up. Uh, first of all, I'll announce it that there's going to be a point here within the middle of the year where the um, recordings will take a break for a couple of weeks as we gear up to talk about John Houston, our big subject of John Houston. I still have not decided if it's going to be what takes over the rest of the feed going forward or if it's going to be interspersed with catalog titles. Uh, that will That is still to be determined. Uh, but on the next episodes of the show, we're actually going to be going uh, continuing into comedy territory uh, as we are going to be discussing Shop Around the Corner uh, with Hope Sears from all the classics. Uh, and we are also going to be chatting about Sullivan's Travels with Kathy Fuller Seeley, uh, who was my intrepid guest for uh, my panel on Jack Benny's film legacy at the Jack Benny Film Convention. But until next time, folks, good night.
This concludes tonight's episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at BallyhooPod and on Instagram at BallyhooReviewPod. That's R-E-V-U-E. Our theme was composed by Matty Ghost. Be sure to check him out on Twitch for more of his music. Our announcer was Henry Jarvis. Be sure to watch his YouTube series, Chewing the Scenery. This is Zach, signing off. Stay tuned for Jack Benny, who follows immediately after station identification. 